when it comes to stuff like uh, a lot of the things we dove into last time were we got kind of on the side of ethics and things in hunting. There's a lot of things in the hunting industry going on, um, and one of them we're involved in is the 2019 North American Whitetail Championship. They have the World Turkey Championship. You see, growing up in this area, you saw fishing contests all over Pyramid Lake or Lake Tahoe for Mackinac, whatever it was. Is there anything wrong, in your opinion, when you start putting prize money towards an end game of like the whitetail championships um i've looked into it i i i dig it i like what they're doing because i think that it does a great job to promote the lifestyle but in your opinion with how staunch you are with protecting our 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 privilege of being hunters if it's done right is it okay or is it prompting people to do things in a manner of whatever it takes to win kind of deal you know i'm I'm not really familiar with the whitetail championship i guess you'd have to explain what it is a little bit um i haven't really seen that yet um it's going to be 14 regions across america and canada it's it's going to be all archery it's going to be open during legal archery seasons in in these different regions uh, pretty much every state in america that has a whitetail season and then different places in canada it's going to the fifty. It's fifty thousand dollars to the grand prize winner. You got to qualify in your region and then go into the finals to make it as far as the total inches scored on your deer and when it was harvested, how it was harvested, all that stuff. There's going to be you know smaller prizes given out to different contests, but the main one is total inches of mass and everything. You know, you kill a hundred ninety or two hundred inch deer, you probably have a good chance of winning the thing. Maybe not because some whitetails get a lot bigger than that. But it's all archery. You have to you have to you know adhere to normal archery and and hunting practices legal seasons and legal methods of hunting now where where i get hung up on stuff like this is is there a spotter on every guy which there's probably not going to be because there's several thousand people that are going to enter this thing and you know i've seen it even in like local contests you know coyote derbies around here where people get accused of killing them before it started freezing them not doing it right you know and i just don't know if people really have that mindset to go to have that no holds bar attitude of i'm going to do whatever it takes to win this fifty thousand dollars even if it take even if it causes me to cheat now again ethically you don't want to you want to think like nobody's going to go out there and, and do anything that's against the morals or ethics of hunting right yeah, but when you start throwing money at it and make it a game, then it becomes a game of, ah, how can I figure out how to win this? Not necessarily about the hunt itself. So it's kind of a dicey, it's a slippery slope, really. I mean, you know, as a guide, I get paid to take people hunting. So there's always this, um, you know, in, in anything you do. But I think that's a little bit different because I'm, I'm paid to take them hunting, not kill a certain size animal. But when you start putting uh, a certain size animal with a certain amount of money, then I think that people kind of see the attraction of that money as opposed to maybe the rules or the ethics around the hunt or why they're hunting. And they're looking for a specific animal for reasons other than, I would say, the pursuit. It's the reasons for money. And that that just becomes kind of a real slippery slope. I mean, in America, you shoot a deer, you can't go sell that deer meat. And there's a reason for it. And I think beyond somebody saying, well, it's like FDA rules and other things. I think beyond that, I saw it happen in New Zealand where you used to be able to sell wild deer meat, but people would go out and they would break the rules because they could now make money off that 
and it led to a lot of animals being shot in places they weren't supposed to be on on private property where you know guy driving down the road see some deer in a field goes oh that's eight hundred dollars each i could kill three of those and no one will know and i'll throw them in my truck and get out of here and so i think that that's part of the reason why we can't sell game meat here is because it tends to lead to people breaking the rules for money and other things so when you kind of add that prize money factor yeah i think that there's going to be some people that are you know i hate to say it but yeah you start throwing fifty thousand dollars at a big deer with when and it's not extremely regulated like in an arena type setting like you know fishing tournaments work great because you're on a lake for a certain amount of time those fish have to be alive when you get them to the dock but if you're doing it with deer over a certain size over an entire season man that gets dicey in my opinion so you're thinking dicey meaning that if you see one during the fifth week of the season but you already killed one the first week but all of a sudden a bigger one pops out and you know that that's gonna maybe up your chances or odds of winning that 50 grand you're thinking i'm thinking there's people out there yeah i mean there's people that break rules all the time which without the fifty thousand dollar incentive i think that there's probably it's going to attract a certain type of person that's willing to break the rules for the money and that's sad to say but yeah i think it's uh it kind of detracts from the some of the reasons that we go out hunting too um you know a little bit as far as now the goal isn't to just outsmart this animal it's to outsmart an animal to beat everyone else to make money and there's a lot of people that will probably take advantage of that unfortunately so how do you if you are going to hold a contest like this is there any way to monitor that i mean would you have to have a a a a qualified spotter on every team on every during every minute of that guy sit or in his stand or in his box blind or ground blind or whatever you think yeah i would think i would think you'd almost have to have it where you you have a ranch and you say here 10 guys have at it place that no one's been before and then send them out and they do their hunt and they've got four days five days whatever more like that bass fishing type tournament where it's a little bit more regulated you know because you just it's a little more controllable what about when it comes to predators remy as far as when there's a bounty on them you know you've seen them where they put bounties on coyotes bring in the tail or bring in a foot or bring in the teeth or whatever and you some are you know are towards preferential points for the big game draw system in different states some are for you know cash money um coyote hunting derbies where guys will go out for a day or three days at a time they got to report here and check in and then they got to report back 36 hours later whatever and they have all these dead coyotes or, and or whatever predators are you know game or legal in that hunt or, or going to score you points is that okay that we can go out and just be just because they're a coyote is that is that okay in your opinion is that promoting predator management at that point or is that also promoting a no holds bar deal to where man there's money up for grabs i can win a new rifle i can win two thousand dollars cash that's going to pay me that's going to be enough fuel money for the rest of the hunting season whatever yeah it just depends i know some of the places that they do those predator hunts it's like the government's paying to do predator management anyways so if you can do those kind of things where it offsets a little bit of the cost of that and kind of meets some objectives as far as predator management goes a lot of those are held in areas where there are high predator numbers i've seen a few you know a lot of the areas they have government trappers in those areas trying to get the coyote numbers down and other things to try to boost the deer populations or whatever so in a lot of ways those actually help 
And yeah, you'll probably get a few guys that might try something, but it's under a certain amount. It's just a little bit harder to, it's a lot easier to manage when it's in one place, you know? Everybody's coming back to that one spot. Say, here's, I don't know, a check-in or whatever. Well, like the world coyote championships are like five different states or four different states where you check in and then you can go to like these and it's usually in the west utah colorado nevada it's been but you go out and you got 36 hours or whatever to kill as many coyotes as you can then report back and get your coyotes counted and make sure that they were you know that they were all killed in that last 36 hour period those guys i don't and there's not spotters with those teams like it's it's almost like how how do you regulate any kind of hunting contest yeah. without full-time spotters that are, that are completely transparent and always communicating back and forth with the judges and the regulators of the of the contest um, it, it seems like there'd have to be a big investment into these things to make sure that they're held now you're saying if it's one ranch how big would that ranch have to be to let 10 guys go out and try to kill an elk or a deer on it would it have to be fifty thousand acres and and, and and how do you do that? Because now aren't you messing with the actual herd on that land too? I mean, you're going to put a lot of pressure on them. You're going to you're going to take a chance of ten or twelve of those deer being killed or elk being killed during that contest off of that one ranch. Do you have to pick where numbers are huge, where it's not a trophy deal? Um, you're managing your herd and, and killing the deer or the 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 bulls that you want to get out of the gene pool. Is is that make more sense to do it that way? Yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't really thought about it too much. I mean, there's probably there's plenty of places. I mean, I know guys that own 50 acres in the east or midwest or whatever, and they shoot 10 deer a year off of it because the numbers are so high. So it just depends where you're at, really. You know, I mean, there's there's plenty of places around that you could do something like that on, I would think. Even even could you do it for mule deer out west? You think? Oh yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely big enough ranches. I mean, I know people that. Uh, you know, guide off of places in eastern Montana or whatever. They'll take, they've got enough deer there to take 10 to 15 deer off of the place a year. So yeah, it could definitely be done somewhere. Could be. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just wondering like how you, there's, there's the the Mallard Masters Championships. There's the two goose up in Torrington, Wyoming, the two shot goose contest. I'm just, I've just always been kind of on the fence about prize money for animals of, of of killing the biggest animal or the most animals because you want to think that hunters you know are wired the right way to not go out and cheat no matter what the stakes are yeah but once you take that you know you, you enter that contest and you become a member or a, a contestant that does that competitive nature take over and you know you i just I just, I don't know if I would personally ever enter a contest. And if I did, I don't know. I don't, I, I still don't think I could ever break the law just to win money. I just don't, I just don't know, you know, that being a cheater is being a cheater. You know, like you're, if you cheated anything, you, 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 you probably have that in your system to be able to do it. But when it comes to killing animals and then put, bringing them in to be scored or how, or counted, it just, it, it's, it's it, like you, you call it a slippery slope. And I think that's a perfect way to, to I don't look down on them. I'm not going to say don't do it. Cause I want to promote hunting. I want to get people doing it. But I also think that you bring up a good point is that we have to make sure that it's regulated the right way. And how do you regulate something like that when it's so vast and over so many different parts of the country? Yeah, I mean, personally for me, I, I mean, I think a hunting type contest that just doesn't appeal to me. I wouldn't watch it. I really wouldn't support it that much because I don't know. I think hunting's just personal between you and the animals and nature. So I'd, I'd like to keep it that way. When you start making it a contest, yeah, it becomes a sport as opposed to, 
like a pursuit for other reasons. And I think kind of when you're, you're making it a sport, you're kind of putting the animals in a position where they're in a game that they don't even know they're in. And when you kind of make it a game, it's just, I, I feel like it's a, it's a little bit degrading to the whole process in some aspects. Yeah, I couldn't argue with that. What when you when you start talking along the lines of a personal pursuit and making it your own, and it's you're you know you're at peace out there with these animals. Do you ever look in the mirror personally and say, "Why in the hell am I putting it?" Because you do a great job on social media. You put a lot of time into social media. You make your livelihood a lot off of social media. I assume that. I'm, yeah. I know you make your livelihood guiding in other ways. Is there anything wrong with that? Is that is that kind of just sharing that personal experience? Are you exploiting it at that point? Is it raw, raw, look at me? Is it social media is going to, somebody watches Remy and they get driven to the point to where, man, I got to go out and, and kill a bigger deer than this guy. This guy's all, not that you're showing that you're killing the biggest deer, but your experiences are awesome. So I'm not saying anything against it. I'm asking you personally, do you ever sit there and go, man, I wish there was no such thing as social media and I could just go out and enjoy this, what I used to do? Or are you like, man, this is my livelihood. I got no problem with making money off of showing the hunt that way. Yeah. Um, well, a couple things. I mean, the first thing I think that's important is me personally. I just don't do anything because somebody tells me to do it or because I think it's going to gain something. I do it, you know, if I'm hunting and that's the animal I want to take, it's, it's still about me going out hunting. I don't, I've never changed the way that I hunt. Um, and I never will, I hope. I mean, I, I'm so set in my ways now, like it's, it's not something that it would affect me, but, um, yeah, I mean, if I, if there was no social media and I didn't share anything, would I be fine? Yeah. I, I mean, that's cool too. But I also think that there's, you know, some aspects of sharing the hunt as far as possibly recruiting new hunters, as well as, you know, just, just sharing your lifestyle with people that may not even understand what it is because any kind of support that we can get is good support. So anytime you know, you start making something a contest, it's a little bit different because you're, sh you're showing it in a different way where other people might see it and say, ah, that's not hunting. That, that looked like the normal hunter. It's not a contest for them. I believe I'd say out of the, all the hunters in America, how many hunters make hunting a contest? Very few. So does social media, does it have the tendency to make it a contest and competitive when, when somebody can look at what you're getting to do and that w will they develop a no holds bar attitude to go and achieve that and get it done? If the guy down the street is killing geese and ducks every day and this guy's seeing it on his social media, and it, it, it does, is, is there any driving factor in social media that could, that could be a negative connotation like that on hunting? Oh, does, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it can. It just depends on the person really. Um, you know, if you, if you look at something and you just, you're always, Oh, I gotta, I gotta do that or outdo that. Then yeah, you're making it a contest. It's no different than a guy going out and entering a contest really. So I just guess it depends on the person and, uh, how they see it, how they react to it. You know, I mean, I guess I don't think you know, for me, it does, I've never really thought like that. I've never seen something and been like, Oh, I gotta outdo that. That's just not my personality, but I'm sure, you know, everybody's different strokes, different folks. So give me one example off the top of your head, if you can, of something negative that you've seen come out of social media in regards to our lifestyle or something that irks you or something that makes you, and you don't have to get, you don't have to say names or accounts or nothing, but is there anything that stands out that you've seen over the last couple of years or since this huge push um, in, in, you know, hunting being so readily available, the content being so readily available out there, does anything irk you about it? Do you see things that guys do or people do that 
that make you go, oh, and cringe? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's always, I probably see stuff daily and I'm like, oh, man, I don't know about that. Um, I think it's just more like a general feeling of if something I, I see just doesn't look like it's the right reasons for hunting and doesn't showcase hunting in a good light, it doesn't really matter what it is. And it could be even that where, you know, you see people that they're always trying to go out and outdo the next guy or they're and, and nothing wrong with pushing yourself and trying to hunt harder and, you know, maybe make goals. And as far as hunting goes, like you're, you've got a good tag, you're looking for a great buck. That's cool. That's, you know, that's your right to do that. That's awesome. But I think maybe it just comes down to the way that you portray it. Um, you know, I know when, anytime that something gets a little, um, you know, sometimes with like big deer and other things where people are competing for that one animal and it gets kind of the gray lines where you see one guy was after it and then it gets spooked off and then you just never know what's going on behind the scenes. I think, um, I, I don't know. I've just seen a few things here and there where, you know, you kind of look at it and you're like, ah, oh, that was kind of shady, but I don't know. Is there a right way for an outfitter to promote his businesses or services on social media or does it always have to be about the, the it total inches? Is it about come with us because we got this area covered? We got we know we're going to kill you a big buck. Or it just seems like out and I'm talking out west right now. Is that yeah. a lot of the things that I see being promoted in social media when it comes to success is big, the biggest, the most inches, the the widest buck. Um, is it automatically assumed by outfitters that the customer is driven by that, that that's what they're looking for? Is anybody ever catered to the guy that is in it for the experience? Is there a right way to, to show what you're trying to bring to that person by saying, Hey, we're going to take your money and, and take you on a hunt being an outfitter or a guide, because a lot of the stuff you see is just monster deer and almost like, man, how do these guys do? have it so wrapped up to where they can kill these monsters on a consistent basis like that. Like, is it safe to say that they're doing it a hundred percent by the book? I mean, it, it, there, these, there's a lot of outfitters that are promoting their stuff on social media where you look at the pictures and you're like, Oh my gosh, dude, these guys kill nothing but monsters. Do you notice that at all? Like how, how, how much the outfitters go after that, that belief that, Hey, we're going to give you the, the hunt of a lifetime by killing you a monster. Oh yeah. You see that a lot. You know, I think it just depends, you know, it, it can be done in areas. I think that just depends on the areas that they have and the areas that they utilize for their services. Um, you know, my outfitting business, we just kind of sell an experience. It's, we're going to take you out hunting. We aren't guaranteeing anything, but we guarantee that we're going to show you a good, a good hunt, like a good experience. Um, there's no animals attached to it. That's up to, you know, time in the field and, your guide has knowledge of the area and is an extremely good and accomplished hunter. And you get to go out with that person and what happens during that hunt happens during that hunt. Now, if you have like, if we're in an area where you have, it's a limited draw tag and there's quality animals, generally we're going to, you know, the client's going to take a bigger animal because, you know, we're looking for the best thing that we can find for them most of the time. But on most of our other hunts, it's just, we're out there hunting and you just don't know what's going to happen, but we have good success because we're out there and we hunt hard and we hunt like we would if we were on our days off, just going out and hunting really. What is, what is the driving factor for you of 
I want to pick one animal right now. If it was mule deer right now, did you draw a mule deer tag in the this yeah. year? You did. Yeah. So is this mule deer tag, was it your number one choice? That was my second or third choice. Second or yeah. third choice. Was it was it picked as a second or third choice because you had knowledge of that area and you know there's a big deer in there that you saw last year? You think you might have put on a little, a few more inches, some more mass. Yeah. Um, what goes through your mind? Let's just start with this. When you're filling out that application with your knowledge, what are you basing it on? History, your experience in that unit, something that you got word of mouth from another guy. How do you how do you go about that? And and I don't want to jump around here. I'm I'm getting somewhere with this, but how did how did you you drew a tag in your number two or three area? Why did you pick those areas in the first place? Yeah, well, my first choice was just an area that I know and had been watching a deer and thought, okay, I like and I like the area. Just I wanted to experience hunting in there. Never had a tag there, but I thought, ah, oh, that'd be cool to have a tag there and. I'd seen a good buck, so I was like, it'd be cool to try to find this deer again and hunt it. Didn't draw that area. So the area I drew, I actually just kind of put on my application right at the last minute because I kind of really look at everything and try to find areas that some, my later choices, well, at least in Nevada because you have five choices, my later choices were always ones that are easier to draw, and I'd rather have a tag than not have a tag. But my earlier choices are more like, if you get lucky, hey, cool drew a good tag the area i drew i just put in because it was close to home and i'm gone a lot so just just be able to be close to home go scouting within a day and not have to take you know four days to two days to get out there and two days to scout and then come back i just thought oh this will be cool because i can put time into it but not really a lot of time away from home because i'm gone all the time so it just feels good to hunt closer to home sometimes so do you you draw this tag because it's close to home. Do you get on the phone and start making plans with all, and I, everybody understands from our last podcast that you're a nomad, you're a gypsy, you're on your own a lot. You like to be in the mountains by yourself a lot. It's a different kind of mindset. You, you do get hunt with other people, but you like to be on your own too. Is this something in this area where you call your local buddies and you're like, Hey Mike, Hey David, Hey, let's roll. I got this tag. I need your help. Let's get in the trucks. Let's get up there. Let's get around these bowls and let's start glass and get the spotting scopes and the binoculars out and just let's get a hundred percent coverage of this area and find the biggest buck in there. Or do you go, all right, I'm going to go get intimate as I possibly can from the get go with this area. I'm going to go out there by myself every day and scout this area and not bring anybody in there. Or is deer hunting more of a celebration when you get a tag like that? Um, yeah, I mean, probably on this hunt, I'll probably just end up scouting it myself, um, you know, trying to learn some spots that maybe I don't know, you know, because I, I don't really hunt it very much. It's just, you know, I can get there within an hour or two from my house so I can go out, scout it, and come home and, you know, learn the area a little bit, hopefully find a good deer while I'm out there looking around. And, um, yeah, I mean, there might be, if if friends have time or whatever, yeah, heck yeah, I'll invite them out. But I think most of the time everybody gets so busy. I just don't want to have to rely on anyone or anything like that. I just want to know what I'm looking for and go out and just do it really. When I was a kid growing up, deer camp was deer camp. Everybody put in for group tags, you know, not everybody, but as many that were allotted, a lot of the guys in my dad's group were, would put in for the same areas. They'd draw Then there'd be six, seven guys in camp with big wall tents, campfires, meals going on, beers being drank, stories being told, celebration, right? It, yeah. was, it was a social event. And then at the end, there might be three or four bucks hanging from a tree and some pictures being taken of three or four, three by fours, you know, and, and some guys would kill a bigger buck. 
Is it ever like that for you to where you, I know you outfit and I know you're in camp with different individuals that might not necessarily be your friends. They might've became your friends through outfitting and they're hunting with you again. But do you ever just celebrate deer hunting and like put in for that party tag and go up and set up that camp and let loose and, and, and still hunt hard and still hunt ethically. But does it ever become a celebration or does it always become intimacy with Remy Warren? Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I've had me and my brothers and dad accidentally, because we used to, we generally put in as a party for our tags, but we're very rarely do we end up getting to all hunt together or anything. We just end up having the same unit. So one guy might roll into camp as the next guy's leaving, or, you know, one guy's got a couple days here, there, whatever. Um, one, one year we act, my brother did the application and he accidentally put rifle tags instead of archery tags. And, uh, so we drew and me, my dad and my two brothers, you know, went out and we're like, ah, cool. Just, go get bucks. Doesn't really matter. You know, we're just going to go out and have a good time. And, and that was a lot of fun. Um, haven't done that in a while really, but, um, for no other reason than just time because that the rifle season's not really conducive. And, and for me, archery hunting, I kind of prefer just a, a bow hunt alone for a few reasons. One, I mean, I don't really, not that there's anything wrong with it in Nevada. It's legal to use radios, but I just prefer not to be guided in on anything. So if you have another guy there, he's kind of just wasting his time because I'm going to stock in on my own anyways. So I kind of feel like, you know, it's just easier for me. And then if you're walking with two people or whatever, bow hunting, that makes it 10 times harder. And if I have someone filming or something like that, that's already way too many people. So most of the time I just either do it myself, go by myself or, um, and film by yourself. Yeah. And film by myself. Is that the plan? Is this, a, this is an archery deer hunt? Yeah. I don't know. I might, um, someone might be filming it for a under armor thing. So, um, we'll see. So if I can it, find a guy that like is sneaky. <laughs> this won't be used on solo hunter. I don't think so. No, no. So not one time when you're filling out that application during that process, are you ever thinking of mass and, and trophy? Does the word trophy ever enter your mind? Oh, I mean, yeah, like if I'm, if I'm hunting for a deer, I like to find the biggest buck I can. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think I put in for areas where there's good deer, good genetics, like I have a chance at a mature animal for sure. I mean, I like to hunt big mature mule deer. Like if a small mule deer walks out, I probably won't ever shoot it. I think I'd feel bad shooting a small mule deer only because I've chased them so much. And I feel like the challenge to me is I'd rather spend my time struggling to get a mature buck than to just go out the first day and shoot a small deer. And it's, that's just personal. Like I don't, I wouldn't down anybody if that's what they did or what they like to do. It doesn't really matter to me. That's just my philosophy when I'm mule deer hunting and everything's different. You know, if I'm elk hunting, it might be different because elk to me, I just like to put something in the freezer. So I don't really care what, if I shoot a small bull or a big bull generally, I just shoot the first bull I can. Why, so, why, uh, why, why don't you have that itch for a trophy bull um i don't i mean it depends on the tag too if i had like a really good area then i'd look for the best elk i could find in that area for sure but a lot of the places i hunt is just general area and the difference to me between a 300 inch bull or a 310 inch bull and a 250 inch bull is like yeah doesn't really matter to me so i'd just rather have the meat anyways um are you into taxidermy yeah i've got quite a few mounts you have quite a few mounts yeah yeah just no big bulls no, I've got, I, I think my biggest bull is like 383. That's a, that's a monster yeah. bull. Yeah, that's a big bull. That's a, is it a yeah. Nevada bull? Yep, yeah. Really? What yeah. unit was that killer? Uh, that was, it was a depredation hunt, actually. Really? Yeah. Archery? Uh, rifle. Rifle. Yeah. Speaking of rifles, you made an announcement a few months back that you started a new project in that, 
in that realm, right? Are you still involved in that? And, and yeah. tell me about that a little bit. Yeah, it's really cool. I'm excited about it. Um, working with Saco. Um, it's a Finnish rifle company. They make a lot of people in America aren't really as familiar with the Saco rifles as they are. Uh, the T they make Tikas as well. Tikas like their um, lower end rifle, which is extremely accurate, like light, good, well priced rifle. And then the Sakos, which are just slightly, you know, they're just under a, a little bit tighter specifications when they make those rifles. So um, they're extremely accurate. And uh, that was part of the reason that I decided to go with them and do this project was because, you know, I, I do a lot of hunts in the U.S., but I also spend a lot of time in Australia and New Zealand and other places around the world. And everywhere else around the world, it's like Sako rifles are are available and they're known as being some of the most accurate rifles in the world. And so I'm like, man, well, we don't really hear about them as much here. And uh, I think part of it is because they have such a long, like a, a large line of firearms that you couldn't even get here and now they've opened up like this configurator thing so you can actually like essentially have them custom make whatever rifle you want which is what they do kind of everywhere else in the world but now that's available in the u.s so kind of to launch that um project i was able to work with them and uh and i'm gonna be i i went and configured like three rifles and then went over to finland and built those rifles myself with these guys and then I'm taking those rifles on like three different hunts in different places around the world. So the first hunt's going to be coming up here in a few weeks uh, in Australia for water buffalo. And I built like a 375 H and H, just safari rifle. And um, and then the next hunt is, is going to be using a uh, 300 short mag in the Finlight two, which is a light mountain rifle. And then I've got like an old Bavarian. Where's that? Where's that hunt at? Um, we aren't releasing where that hunts at and yet. Or nor the third. What was the third rifle? And then the third rifle is a um, a six five uh, Swede by, um, and uh, that'll be. It's like a Bavarian carbine, like a full length wood stock, just like a real classic, easy. Whoop. Buffalo, real classic buffalo in north dakota you're going with that one. no it's more like um it's more like a like a fast pointing fast shooting rifle um it's like a it's a smaller caliber so you know it'd be something that you'd use on a charging coyote yeah exactly like uh they use them a lot in europe for like driven hunts yeah. um stuff like that because they're like really they almost they point like a shotgun almost that's um, cool. but yeah open side cool. open iron sights yeah I'll, i think i'll i'll actually put a scope on that um probably hunt i'll probably be hunting some species of deer in south america so the the locations uh is australia for the first hunt for the water buffalo and then um a hunt in asia and then a hunt in south america so you're sitting here talking like it's nonchalant and you're throwing out places that are literally like bucket list places for just a regular person to vacation or visit or be a tourist in yeah you're talking about being a 35 year old however old you are man getting to go hunt these places already hunters work their entire freaking lives to be able to afford one bucket list trip you're talking you're throwing around australia you just got back from new zealand you're going to asia you're going to south you've been to all these places several times already start real quick with I, I think it's amazing. You get to go and, and ride up these prototype guns and then go to Finland and go to the factory of Seiko rifles and sit down with their executives, sit down with their engineers and build these rifles out. As far as the business part of the hunt goes, before we get to the traveling part, the business and the industry part, how does Seiko find Remy Warren? I know you're out there. I know you're a big name. I know you're a great author. I know you've been on TV for years. You've got great partners. 
But how does, how do you get to be a 35 year old American kid from Reno, Nevada? Now you're in a factory in Finland. How does that relationship mature or how does it, how does it cultivate? How is it born? How does it nurture? Tell me about that a little bit. Yeah, I don't, that, that's a good question. No, I think, um, some of the people at Saco, you know, they were just looking for, um, you know, someone in the U S that really kind of embodies the things that their company in, um, really cares about as far as the way that they hunt. Um, hunting is a huge part of their culture in Finland and it's actually really more or less part of their culture as far as like you go into a restaurant there and everything you order, generally the guy in the kitchen, the chef shot the moose or whatever that's being served that night in the restaurant, which is a really cool, like, I mean, like everybody eats their, well, the caribou, the reindeer, they're more like farmed, um, in the Northern part of the country. But then if like moose is on the menu, it was something that was shot probably by someone that works in that restaurant. Um, or you can even like buy game meat. So a lot of like wild food and things is extremely important and part of their just everyday lives in that country, which I think is cool. And then, you know, just somebody that, um, I think they, you know, has a sense of adventure and isn't afraid to just go and try new things and do things on their own. Um, like I said, I mean, I've been hunting in New Zealand DIY style for probably 10 years or more. Um, just going over there and pretty cheap to just pick up your stuff and read the regulations and go out and find some public land and start hunting. And, uh, I've kind of been doing that a lot of different places where I can, you know, it takes a lot of research and a lot of logistics and a lot of planning to figure out how, okay, how can I do this and be legal and follow all the rules and, and still like have a good hunt and hunt the way that I want to hunt. Um, you know, it's just like that. I think they really admired that spirit of adventure that I have. And, uh, but, but tell me real quick, like, I know that I know they're going to admire it once they find you, but was this an introduction? Yeah, I think, um, through, I don't even know. I think some other reps probably mentioned some stuff and, um, a couple other, and then some people that I knew that knew them kind of got us introduced. And so a shot show meeting or do they, do you get a phone call from this, yeah, weird, phone this, call. this yeah. weird area code and you get on this, this Finland dude is talking to you? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Like, hey, Rami, I got your name and I'm, I'm interested in you shooting my gun. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Um, through a friend of mine who uh, is working with them for. Were you even looking for a rifle partner? Um, yeah, I, act- I, I was. Yeah, I was uh, open to the idea. Have you sure. ever had one? Um, no, this is pretty much the first. Yeah. Mainly because you enjoy archery so much, or this is just it's just time now. Um, yeah, it's just time. I mean, I've shot a lot of different rifles over the years, and I just thought, oh, man, it'd be cool to work with a rifle company because I do I do like to do rifle hunts. And I do like to show those hunts, especially, I mean, me, I love to bow hunt, but at my core, I'm a hunter. Like it doesn't matter what weapon it is. You can put a muzzleloader in my hand. You can put a shotgun in my hand. You can put a rifle in my hand. I love to go hunting. The whole reason I even started bow hunting was just to, to extend my season to hunt in the times that there was no other, there was no bird season or there was no rifle season just to kind of really extend my opportunities out get tags easier. That was the whole reason I started bow hunting. So I still do love to rifle hunt. I guide a lot, a lot of rifle hunts. Um, and there's a lot of people that, you know, maybe watch my social media or other things that are only rifle, that only rifle hunt. And I think that rifle hunting is a great way to even get into hunting. You know, it's a lot easier to pick up than I'd say bow hunting. So, you know, I wanted to really, uh, kind of have a partner that, you know, 
allows me to showcase that a little bit as well. So I thought that. So tell me about the business of this. How do you become this successful to be able to do what you're doing? Tell me what's next with, with Finland and Seiko. Do they come at you and say, this is what this project's worth to us. And this is what we're willing to give you. Now you don't have to tell us details. I get that part of it. Or do you have an agent or does Remy Warren get on the phone and go, all right, this is what I'm going to charge you to do this. You're going to pay all my expenses. You're going to pay my travel over there. You're going to give me this much in product. And then this is the financial support that I need on top of it. This is going to be the agreement. Is it a multi-year deal? How are you structuring all this stuff when you still have to go in and spend hours to even plan a trip to Australia? Or do you have a team of travel agents that work under the Remy Warren name? Are you doing all this on your own? Yeah, I'm I'm pretty easy. I just kind of like go with the flow. To be <laughs> but honest. you say go with your flow, Remy, but you're going to you're going to three different unbelievable places with a company that found you, and yeah. they're paying you to shoot a world class rifle. I guess that name's thrown around a lot. I guess a, a a precise badass rifle is what a Seiko is. I mean, if you're in the hunting game, you know that. What what's next in the relationship do you have to come to an agreement before you get on that plane and fly to finland or you start drawing up your first rifle um yeah i mean we just talk about it over the phone i like as far as the planning goes i plan all the hunts and everything um just because i I, i've done it so long like i you know and i've got a lot of contacts and a lot of friends and places so like the australia hunt i mean i just call up a couple of my buddies over there that are connected and have vehicles and live in the northern territories and like hey guys you want to go on a hunt this week oh yeah awesome let's go let's do this that kind of thing um you know the asia hunt i've uh, set up through another guy that i know um kind of like a through a friend of a friend that has been going over there for years and uh has it pretty set up with local contacts and has the permitting process all down and all that good stuff and then as far as just like working with companies i mean it doesn't matter whether it's Saco or um, you know, any, any company under armor or whatever. I mean, I kind of just, I don't know. I just do everything myself really. So you have no representation No. So do these deals just fall in place for you? Or are you actively seeking a, a partnership like Seiko? Were you in the game and these guys, some pe- friends of the industry heard, Hey, Remy needs a rifle partner. And then all of a sudden you get this phone call because one of your friends knew somebody at this company and they thought that it might be interesting to at least get a feel for what you were looking for. There's still got to be money made in the process, though. There's still got to be livelihood met in the process. So do you have a set price or a set standard or different levels to work with Remy Warren? Uh, n- no, not really. It just depends on, you know, normally the com- a company just comes to me and is like, oh, here's what we're thinking. And I'm like, OK, cool. Sounds good. That's kind of the way I work. You don't negotiate at all. Um, a little bit, not really. No, just depends. Just depends, honestly, on like what it is. So this one was just too good of a deal to pass up. Um, yeah, I mean, like when someone's like, "Hey, we want to, you want to go hunting in like some cool places?" I'm like, "Yeah, cool, sounds good. Sign me up." So how do you make a living then? Um, yeah, I mean, like working with companies as well for um, you know, it just depends on the projects that I do. Uh, I, I mean, I do a lot of different stuff. So, I mean, I I write pretty much full-time yeah give me this i, I mean, want this portfolio okay, right yeah. now if so, i said what do you do for what yeah, do you do for i mean i have like 30 jobs really and i want to tell myself. me um i have an outfitting business in montana um so i guide pretty much you know uh, quite a bit i just got done guiding last week 
um, for spring bears and go into, uh, this is your own. Yeah. That, yeah. We so, talked about this. Yeah. So I own the outfitting business and do all the guiding myself. Um, and then, uh, I do a lot of writing for Western Hunter magazine. Um, and then every once in a while I'll do some like freelance writing. If somebody says they only want to, I don't know, like Peterson's online or who knows what, you know, just different random stuff. Um, so I do that, like the writing that takes a lot of time actually that I don't have, but I still do it. Um, is there good money in that? No, not at all. Like, you just, it just helps keep your name out there? Yeah, I guess. And it's just like it keeps you, I don't know, just keeps you writing, I guess. Like kind of really thinking about you things. you always been a writer? Were you a creative um, writer in college, in high school? Were you good at creative writing? Yeah, I've always been okay with it. I mean, the, the stuff I write now is mostly like how-to stuff, and I just hate doing it. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's like a few hundred extra bucks, you know, every month. You're like, sweet. <laughs> the time that it takes to do it for me. I'm, pro I'm not like, there's some people that can just sit down and hammer that stuff out. I'm not. Like, I have to think about it. I have to research everything if I'm going to talk about something. Um, it takes me like a lot of time to do that kind of stuff where I'd prefer to do just like a cr more creative type writing, um, telling stories and other things that that's easy for me doing how to's and gear review and stuff like that. That's actually pretty tough. Well, gear review is easy cause you just, you know, it's form it's like, there's a formula to it, but, um, yeah, the writing stuff, I mean, I enjoy it. It's like a love hate relationship cause I actually kind of started out writing when I was, uh, I don't even know when I started probably like 18, 19, maybe just started writing stuff. You got pieces published then too? Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. cool. Um, you know, but like growing up for me, like one of, I was just really into magazines, really into hunting magazines, like hunting magazines really taught me how to hunt in a lot of aspects. What was the best? Um, I really liked Eastman's, um, you know, there, there wasn't as much like knowledge based stuff in Eastman's, but I liked the stories. Um, I mean, field and stream for a while, you know, some of these like outdoor life, I, I pretty much had a subscription to every magazine. I would get the magazine. I would read it cover to cover. I'd put it like file it away. I had like a, one of those magazine holder things. I'd file it away. At the end of the year, I would go back and reread every magazine. I'd, I'd just go through magazines like it was nobody's business. Just any kind of tips I could glean from it, um, even th from the stories, like seeing how people were successful and really analyze that kind of stuff. So why were you drawn to Eastman? Because of Mike's ability to teach? Um, no, I, I think, well, it was the, like at the time, it was the only Western hunter hunting magazine. You know, everything else was just dedicated to... Um, Whitetail. Whitetail. And, you know, there'd be like the occasional elk article. And I mean, it wasn't just hunting. It was, you know you'd get tips for duck hunting out of field and stream or fishing and outdoor life and just different kinds of little, you know, little piece of information. But then, you know, the Western hunting really appealed to me. So I think for a while there, what, God, what other magazines were there? Was trophy life, Hunter trophy magazine. Newly yeah. um, crazy. Newly crazy kind of came out a little bit later. I, you know, I had, a, I've literally sports had field. Were you the big sports? Yeah. I had with yeah, the nice covers. On yeah. It. I mean, I literally had every magazine for every, Kind of thing. So was, you were almost OCD-ish, almost oh, anal yeah. about it. like like I was with baseball cards and music. Exactly. And I and I and I and I and I can tell you this right now. When I finally got into duck hunting, I was the same way with magazines and VHS tapes and in yep. the videos, right? Yeah, I mean, like for me, magazines were like the thing. I mean, I was just into it. So what's the feeling like when you open one of those at eighteen or nineteen and see your name as the author? Is it like? exuberation like you're like wow i did it i made it i'm in the because i obviously magazines were your life they they yeah. taught you how to hunt pretty much and now you're in those magazines was it 
like I, life can't get any better than this. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was pretty cool. I, I, it was something that I thought, oh man, it'd be cool to be able to share information or share. Like, you know, I think the first one was just for, well, I mean, the first thing I ever had, I wrote for just like a little thing in the NBU journal, you know, just a little story of a mule deer hunt. Um, and then I started working, I think I was probably 22 when I started working for this magazine called real hunting magazine, which, uh, ended up going out of business maybe like five years later, had nothing to do with me, just the economy. But, um, <laughs> I <laughs> ended up, sure we know that I ended up like writing for them pretty much full time. And then I started doing all the design work and all the editing and I worked about 40 hours a week for no pay for like four years. You know, just, I was into it and I built it, but because of that, I, I mean, I built a resume that when I was probably 25 years old, I had a resume of working on magazines and writing and stuff that nobody else my age had. It would be impossible to have, you know? So I was like, that, that was kind of part of it for me was I just loved magazines and I thought, man, nobody would give you a chance unless you're established. And I was like, the only way to be established is to just work your ass off for nothing and uh, really put the time in. And because of it, you know, I was able to, you know, kind of parlay that into working for other magazines and kind of writing kind of whatever I want, really, um, which is cool. But did you say you hate it now? Oh, it, well, it's just one of those things. Like, it's not It's not that I I just don't really like, you know, how-to article type writing because you just, I don't know how many I've written now. It's probably a lot, but it, I don't like just rehashing stuff. I like everything to be new and there's nothing new not, I mean, I do find something new. So it's a, it's a big struggle to like try to find something to be creative, to find a new way to tell an old story of, and tell someone how to do something. And when you've written about, about these things so many times, you're like, okay, how, what's a better way to describe what, how to do something? Because, you know, a lot of it too, is like so much information and knowledge for me, it just seems like super easy because I'm out there like for elk. I hunt elk nearly every day of the season, guiding and doing other things. I mean, it's like you put me in the elk woods, I'll get it done. I'll find the elk. We'll kill an elk because I have so much experience with it. But then to transcribe that experience into five steps for you to do the same thing, I'm like, it's just too much information. I'm trying to condense down into this one thing. It's not fair. Yeah. It's you like, you're like, oh man, what, or like. How do you describe so one you, little are you, thing? Are you giving the reader? So a, are you giving? Sorry to interrupt, but are you giving the reader a false sense of security to trust you that if you're not giving him exactly what you're telling him, you're about to give him? No, I mean I'm giving people the right information. It just takes a long time to, to break make it, it concise. To yeah. concise it. yeah. So let me try to trick you. It takes me we, a long time before we go into the rest of your resume of what you do for a living. So far, you're an outfitter and you're a writer. We're going to get into the sponsors and stuff. Let me, let me just ask you a how to, if you were going to write, if I wanted you to write for my magazine on how to butcher or field dress, I should say an antelope, what's the first thing you start with? And are you breaking it down to where, or do you start with like, Hey guys, have a good understanding of the temperature outside. Is that the first thing that you think of when you do it? Or do you go right into the cuts you make? Um, I think that butchering is one of those things to where every hunter should know how to do it. But it's almost like second fiddle to the actual learning how to hunt and killing the deer. You know, yeah. once you put that bullet through it, that deer dies. Now what? Right. Right. So to me, like that kind of instructional stuff is key because there's always new ways to get a, a deer or an antelope in this case 
butchered and processed. So when you're, when you get that, when you get that subject or you get that job, right? What is it called when you get it? Is that, what is that? Is that a project? Yeah. So whatever. You get that project given to you. Do you, do you go in and try to figure out how to be clever with that and say, all right, here's what we do. When you antelope hunt, do you carry coolers full of ice or how do you get the meat from the, the 98 degree heat in the desert to, do you start thinking along those lines or is it just all about we're getting the skin off of it and getting the meat off of the bone? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's along the lines of like finding a way to make it entertaining because it, you could, you could, nobody wants to read an instruction manual. Like you, how many dudes open up something with 400 pieces and throw the instruction manual <laughs> straight into the garbage? Them. I do. Yeah. Everybody. And then you regret it. <laughs> right. But why? Because an instruction manual is boring. It tells you what to do. Have you seen the Traeger instructional <laughs> manuals though? It's I like, have. All right. It says first beer. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. Have you seen beer those? one and then you get like one. beer six. <laughs> beer <laughs> it's like a, it's a six pack instruction. Those are pretty cool. Yeah, that's, that's pretty, pretty cool. That's pretty I clever. did think that was pretty funny. I forgot about that. Although I didn't, I was like, oh yeah, A, B, got it. And yeah. then I put the legs on wrong and then I looked at the instruction and I was like, okay, yeah. Well, they're sense. pretty much yeah. telling you a monkey could put yeah, this thing together. Exactly. <laughs> so you might as well have a beer. But. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you get clever with it to make it entertaining. Yeah. So do you tell a little bit of a hunting story first? Yeah. A little, yeah. I think so. A lot of times. Um, it just depends. I'm like, it honestly just depends on what I feel like that day. Um, but yeah, most of the time I try to tell some kind of story and relate it to experiences that I've had. And then kind of get into the reasons why things, you know, because you could tell somebody, well, uh, ducks fly south in the winter, but it's like, why do ducks fly south in the winter, you know? Because it's uh, warm. Down right, there. exactly. But, you know, it's just like, you kind of have to really dive into so many different things to make something entertaining and readable and informative at the same time. So for me, I just, it, it takes me a long time to process that. And like work it out and actually sit down and write it. And is it ever, it. is it ever hard to be self-admitting to that you have become a, um, what is the word I'm looking for? You've become a voice in all of these different areas. Could you write a piece on how to, on how to butcher an antelope? Oh yeah. Could sure. you write a piece on how to prepare and cook the bounty and, and serve it? Oh yeah, definitely. And could you write a piece on how to scout antelope? Yep. Yeah. And elk. Yeah. And mule deer. Desert sheep. Yeah. See, so like all of the experiences that you've had in the field, you can't do that just by being a writer. You right. can't come out of literary school out of call off a college campus and be like, all right, now I'm going to become a credible source of this. Yeah. So you can't do that by being 18 and just working your ass off for six years for free or however long it was and not getting a paycheck, but be, but having your name in a lot of these articles. So along the way, are you, are you already that seasoned of a hunter that you can that you become a credible source that people are going to entrust in what you're writing oh yeah for sure i mean i think like when i first started guiding and doing all that i would take off from august 1st and hunt every day except for maybe two or three travel days you know whether guiding or hunting or whatever different units helping people whatever pretty much a hundred there's like starting out after high school i was hunting 120 plus consecutive days. I mean, most people won't hunt the guys that hunt a lot, probably don't hunt 120 days in their life. And I, I mean, you think about it, you go, okay, well, what we've got a four week season and we hunt on the weekends. You're talking eight days a year. You might think about it all the time. You might be really obsessed with it, but there's a lot of guys that don't get a 120 days of actual field time, chasing animals, learning habitats of animals, watching animals, 
butchering animals, cut, you know what I mean? Like the whole process from start to finish guiding really, really throws you into the deep end. I mean, just, I, I got a job in, where was it? Um, South Dakota one year and I was, uh, pretty much the, the dude doing everything. I think I gutted just 75 deer in two weeks just cause I was the official gutter dragger on that, in that operation. So it's like, man, who gets that kind of experience in a short amount of time? So you really like, just by being out there all the time, really get a good grasp of what you're doing and you learn what works and what doesn't work. And through that experience, I always felt like the writing was a way that, you know, I was very fortunate to be able to spend so much time out in the outdoors hunting. And so for me, I felt like, man, if a guy only gets to hunt a couple weeks a year, wouldn't it be awesome if he knows what I learned over the course of five seasons hunting every day of the season, man, if I could just tell him that little bit that I learned over the course of that, I feel like it's my obligation to help those people out to like share the information that I've learned to make their time in the field more effective. And that's the whole reason that I continue to write is because I believe that it's a good way to help people kind of get over a learning curve, whether you hunt a lot or a little bit, there's so much trial and error in it. And if you could just, you know, if somebody would have just told me a few things when I was starting out, I think I would have been more successful early on as opposed to having to really grind through it a lot of times. Um, but you know, for me, it just comes down to experience and time in the field. And so the writing is a way for me to share that experience of things that I've learned in a way that I think it'll benefit other people. You know, if they take it to heart and go, man, that makes sense. I'll try that. They're, they're probably going to be more successful because they're taking something that might've been over a thousand days in the field. And I finally like, yeah, this, this is working over and over and over. And then I can share that with you. So now you're, how was there something that happened that you knew you'd become a credible source? Did you get a message from a reader that went, Hey, I, I applied this and bam, or was it the editor in chief saying, Rami, this shit's dead on. I mean, you, your writing is great. Um, your flow's good. You tell a great story. Your instruct, your experiences are speaking for themselves. You got a really good grasp of this on how to get, you know, get that knowledge of somebody else. Did, did, did somebody have to tell you that? Or did you have the confidence right from the beginning? Did it take a few projects to get to get in, that ingrained in your head or was it just from the get go that you knew that this was working? Oh, I mean, I knew it was working because the thing is, when you're guiding somebody, you, you have to you have to be successful pretty much all the time. And in order to be successful all the time, you can't mess up in order to not mess up. You got to do things perfect. And, you know, so you, you develop a system that works really well. And that was all I was sharing is a system that worked really well. It wasn't it couldn't be disputed because I knew that it worked. It was something that I tried in the field and learned over time. So it was the information that I write about wasn't just like, Oh, I've got a writing degree and I'm really good at writing art. I'm not really good at writing articles. I just have the background and the knowledge and I'm able to put that into some thing. That's why it takes me a long time. I mean, I'm not, there are people that come out of writing school and could write a, a how to article like that. They don't have the experience. I believe they just compile other people's information that have the experience and then regurgitate it into an article. I never do that. I only use my own experience and the things that I've learned. And those things that I've learned work because I know that they work because of the amount of time that I've spent doing them. Okay, so now let's parlay that into the other one of the other jobs out of the 30 that you say you have. 
which is, and how do you classify it? Is it as a brand ambassador, a brand spokesman? Are you a celebrity endorsement? What are you to that logo on your sleeve or the logo that was on the hat I made you take <laughs> off? What are you to these guys? Are you a brand ambassador? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, essentially a brand ambassador. It's like, you know, you work with the company for a lot of, a lot of different reasons and, and in a lot of different ways. And it depends on the company. Um, you know, for me personally, I only really work with companies that I already, you know, like that I would use no matter what. Like I'd never work with a company that I think if I think their stuff's garbage, like I just won't do it. Like it's not worth it to me. Um, so it's stuff that I would use anyways, but also, you know, it's kind of a mutually beneficial relationship because, you know, I can kind of use it. They use it as a way of advertising their products in some aspects, but also a way of like creating an identity with their brand of what their brand represents and the type of people that they want using it and how that stuff gets used in the field. So a lot of feedback on product testing, um, well, the optics company, I work with Vortex. I've got two pairs of, you know, I keep going, they go, Oh, what do you think about this? And then I give them feedback. And, and, you know, over the years and then you keep giving feedback and then they keep send building new stuff. And then I've got a couple pairs of binos that I've been testing this last week. And I'm, I'm like, dude, these are incredible. You know, like you get to really like work with these companies and they, they believe your information is valuable and what they provide to you is valuable. You know, they're assisting you in what you do every day or what I do every day, which is, you know, my hunts and other things, whether it's guiding or my own personal hunts or filming, like they assist in that, they make it possible. Um, and they also help provide the gear that makes that possible as well. And then in return, you know, I provide advertising through social media, just through use. Um, and as well as like feedback on products and, um, other things, you know, so it's kind of that same analogy of being a writer to where you're a credible source of information for this, this reader, that's going to take your tips, tactics, instructional or whatever your experiences, and they're going to go apply it to what they do. Yeah. So now you're taking that same ideology of saying, Hey, through my trials and tribulations with this project, you know, helping them redesign it, helping them, you know, with little pointers here and there, you're only working with companies that you believe in their product. Like you said before, that's kind of the same thought process, right? You're giving that in consumer, like, Hey, there, that vortex is saying, we are putting our name on Remy. We're paying Remy to be a brand ambassador because we believe that our potential in consumer is going to believe him as being credible in the field because of all the days he spent guiding the articles he's written, the experiences that he's lived over the years, that makes him a perfect fit for a vortex or another company. So it's kind of the same thing. You're writing to give you're, you're writing and in, in, in be, becoming credible to that reader. And now you're on TV using this product and you're becoming credible to that person. That's why these companies are paying you to write and these companies are paying you to use their products. So there's sources of revenue being created in both of those that be, that come natural for you. Yeah. What if another company comes along that's bigger than Vortex and says, man, you've kicked ass, but now it's time for you to get paid. Does the almighty dollar have a, a place in this with Remy Warren? Do you entertain it? Or these phone calls with these people at Vortex, like you just said, and you got it all fired up. Oh, these are the baddest ass, blah, blah, blah. You become friends with these guys. They become part of your family almost. Oh, does, yeah. the, does the dollar come into effect, though, to where now the, Marin, the the Texas Rangers come to Alex Rodriguez and say, we'll give you 225 for 10 years. The Mariners aren't going to match it. Free agency comes, he's gone. Or are you loyal as heck to that team, no matter what they're able to to pay you? 
Um, I'm pretty loyal. I'm a pretty loyal type of person, but I also, you know, like people that have been loyal to me, I'm loyal to them, but also, you know, you develop a relationship with the people that work there and the people that you've been working with over the years. And, you know, you don't really get to see your input, um, really shine through until it's a few years down the track. You know, I might make a suggestion on a pair of pants and it might be five years before that pair, before I see that, that pair of pants come out or, um, whatever it might be, you know? So I, I'm like a firm believer in longevity and just really like working with people and supporting people that have supported me for so long. So yeah, it's, it's more, more about like building relationships for me and things that I trust and am all for as far as anything else. Like, Is it constant Remy? Is it when you get to this, this level that you've achieved and it's it's very awesome of what you've done truly is and i'm not saying that you even it, it, meeting you you wouldn't know that you had all this stuff going on you're a very humble person but is it just constant to where you got to like you're turning people away because you've become so credible and such a uh, uh an impressionist you're getting awesome engagement on your social media you're writing articles to where you can build product and brands into that you're going on all these different hunts with you the afore, the before mentioned seiko but that doesn't mean that you're not going to bring your other partners along. Right. So now all of a sudden, does it, you get, is it just a nonstop knocking down your door to get you to be part of a ton of brands once you meet this, you know, once you get, get to this spectacle? Um, yeah. I mean, I think there is a lot of that, like, you know, companies saying like, Hey, you know, but I think, um, I think I actually have like a, a fairly, I don't know if I do or not, but I feel like I have like a fairly known reputation for continuing to work with companies that that I like and support, um, this support me as well. Like, I'm not one to just, I, I don't know. I, I just feel like you lose not like you as a, like as a person, I feel like I would lose a lot of credibility if I jumped around all the time, just chasing like someone that's like, Oh, we'll pay you a little bit more than this guy. Um, because you know, you'd be not that you just wouldn't have enough time invested in it to really understand the company and the products and, like experience, you know, I feel like it's, if, if I'm sponsored by somebody, right. It's, I can't really go and say, start suggesting other brands to you. But what I can do is I can essentially test out everything within that company's product line and become an expert on that in time, time spent with those products. And then if you ask me, Hey, which Under Armour pants do you like best? Then I can give you an accurate, uh, an accurate answer as far as, Here's what works really well in these situations. Here's how I've used it over the course of X amount of days. You know, if I'm switching stuff all the time, man, I don't really get to put like stuff through the ringer, really like field test it the way that I would like to. I'd just be like trying something and then giving you an impression based off of what somebody else says about it. And that's not what I like to do. I like to give people my impression of things based on a lot of time spent with something. It's awesome. Refreshing. So are you happy with the Under Armour line of product right now? Yeah, I like, I mean, I think that it's, you know, I've seen it change so much over the years and I, I like where they're at right now. Um, and it took a long time. I mean, they, they had stuff that I've liked, you know, and then stuff goes away and stuff comes back. And I really like the line that's out right now. And there was a lot of, you know, like discussion even three years ago to get them to get these kind of to the point where they are right now. Like, I feel like the ones that are out there now are a lot of, if I was, if they're just like, Hey, build us a pair of pants, 
that's essentially what I would have built, what they have right now. So do you look at that when they come out in the last, I don't know, 24, 36 months with their camo pattern, do you look at it as, oh, here we go again, somebody coming out with their own camo pattern? You know, you got so many of them out there now, digital patterns, and, yeah. and you know, there's, there's so many different camouflage choices under armor says all right well we're i don't even know if they still offer in the real tree and you know the where they got to pay licensing fees i assume they do don't know for sure you can tell me if they do or not but do you get that and go this is the ugliest shit i've ever seen or i'm going to go to montana and apply this in the field and give them feedback to i mean do there's a lot of different camouflage patterns that are going to hide you from elk in montana oh yeah do you go to them and say what are you thinking why would you even put why would you even take a chance of damaging your brand and your influence in the in the in the marketplace because under armor's become an iconic brand in a pretty short amount of time since kevin and the guys started it do you ever look at it ever look at something like maybe the camel pattern go dude no we don't need this or are you always i know you're not a yes man or do you give them feedback of like well if you're going to go down this route i think that you need did you have anything to do with the camouflage pattern well no i didn't because i never i i've always used their uh ridge reaper baron stuff that they've had for a long time um because that they kind of originally developed that for the western hunting type and i really like like it really blends in well the open stuff um because and i actually really like I really like their camo pattern. Having done a lot of studies on camouflage personally through my Apex Predator show and we're doing like a whole episode on camouflage. I mean, I spent weeks like going through reading research articles on camouflage and the types of camouflage. Um, so it uses that, that camouflage uses like a disruptive pattern, um, which it's not, um, which actually like I think is one of the better styles of patterns is a disruptive pattern. Now a lot of the camouflage patterns are taking on that that pattern. Whereas like real trees more of a mimicry pattern, but that I feel like it's a little too dark and doesn't blend in certain places. Not that they've got other stuff, you know. They didn't have stuff for Western hunting for a very long time, so I would always try to find other stuff. Um, so for when they stopped using the real tree and mossy, or I think they still use real tree, but when they stopped using mossy oak, I mean it didn't really affect me at all because I always wore something else anyways it didn't really matter to me but um, so you're saying right now that the new camouflage pattern they have out right now you like yeah yeah there well they've got well this this pattern right there i got a little patch on my shirt that has it but that's the probably what you're referring to is like their forest camo so what they did is they adapted the barren one to a green color scheme for uh forest type camouflage which would replace like the white the white tail turkey type patterns of probably like mossy oak or something and, and, but as a as a brand ambassador, they didn't come to you and say, "Hey, we need you to go test this camouflage to see if it works." Do they do they put it through the ringer, or is it just something that where, "Hey, we're Under Armour, people are going to believe what we say"? Oh yeah, no, that's like I mean, I tested the Baron one for quite a few years, um, you know, in a lot of different environments, and you go like, "Yeah, this works." You know, it's pretty easy to tell. Like, it doesn't take long to understand why it works. There's I was actually in Alaska. It worked really good in that kind of stuff, like the tundra. And the um, someone was take actually. Uh, there's a, actually um, an ad that has this photo in it. The camera guy was coming over looking for me, and he almost accidentally stepped on me. <laughs> he didn't see, like literally. You know, he's just like, and I'm, I'm out in the open. I'm like, what are you doing? Why are you so close? And scared the crap out of him. And he's like, holy cow! I didn't see you there, man. I was like, I thought he was joking, you know. He's like, no, 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 stay there, stay there. And he walked back like. 20 30 yards and took a picture and it became an ad because it was like and he looked at it i was like dang i was blending in really well and it's just 
wide open tundra. You know, it was pretty cool. I thought that was like a cool test. You have to the, you, I want to see that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know if you have it on your phone. I don't, but... I don't have it on it, but it's on, it's on like the back of, um, Epic outdoors magazine. And maybe if it was on some other ones for a while, I'm not sure where it is now, but I've seen it in a few places. It's kind of cool. So when something like that happens and it gets back to corporate, it's Baltimore, right? Yeah. When it gets back to Baltimore and it gets back to the, the campus, is it just like, I don't know if this question is going to make sense. And I, I don't even mean to mean it as a question. I'm just picturing Under Armour. They have the biggest of the big in the sports that pay huge money. They got the Bryce Harpers and they got the Jordan Speeds and they got, you know, people in the NFL and, and NASCAR, all everything. Yeah. All of a sudden this thing comes in the door from little old Remy Warren in Alaska. Does the company go nuts for something like this? Are they ingrained in the outdoor lifestyle? I'm not saying that it has to be on the same level as jogging or working out or fitness or baseball, basketball, whatever. But is it like, man, this is unreal. Do they like hold you accountable for it and like praise you for it? And they keep it at the forefront of like, this is a big deal to Under Armour. This is a really, not just that picture specifically, but everything that you do for them. Is it looked at as like a big part of their business and their overall scheme in the industry and their, in the marketplace? Or is it just a, a little pimple on their back? Um, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure a hundred percent. I mean, I think that, yeah, within their, you know, like the hunting things run independently from everything else. So, um, yeah, I think that it is something that they're like, oh yeah, this is sweet. Like it's, it works. Um, yeah, they get excited about it. I know there was, um, a photo that they had that was an ad for a while. Uh, I was crossing a river with like a stick and then had a mule deer rack in my back and carrying a bow and it was like crossing this river. And, um, it's pretty, like, it's a pretty cool picture. And, uh, they ended up, um, using that for some ads for the hunting stuff. But, uh, a buddy of mine who works for ESPN, um, that I met, I've known for a long time. He does a lot of filming for like the, he does like all the, uh, what would it be like, um, like personal bio things that they do every once in a while. So they might do something on like Shaq and it'll be like a 30 like a little, for 30 or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what it is. So they, you know, that he went to the Under Armour, um, facility in like their main press room right by, uh, like right where everybody like is in. And he's like, he sent me a picture. He's like, dude, this picture is like their front and center main picture on the wall here at their Under Armour headquarters. It was like a dude crossing a river in camouflage. And I was like, yeah, that's me, man. He's like, that's awesome. You know, cause you wouldn't expect cool. that. Now, now they obviously rotate through those photos, sure. you know, but it was up for quite a while. And I was like, that's pretty cool. Well, that's though. cool that they show that part of culture within yeah. their culture. Right. Exactly. And that's right? like, because you, you would assume that there's a lot of people within those walls that aren't into our culture. Right. right? Yeah. And so I thought that was, he was like, that, that was pretty cool that they kind of put that front and center. It's like when you walk in, and that's what you see. So you know. before you had told me that all these pictures are taken by you, so you do everything on your own. Is this picture an Under Armour photographer out there, or do you get in the creek or the river and set your phone on on a, on something? I, I assume that the picture's taken from the middle of the creek. To make so that one, that one was like a under. They did like a photo shoot for ads and stuff. So this is them. a setup photo. It wasn't was, a real yeah. life photo yeah, that you're correct. actually walking and your buddy's yeah. just snapping. Yeah, something. correct. That one was, and then the 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 Alaska one was while I was we were doing a um, like a Ridge Reaper film. They do they the guy took some stills as well during that time, and do then also do you enjoy photo photos. shoots? Uh, no, I won't do them anymore. Why? Um, I just don't like the whole setup thing. Like it's just not me. And I just like voiced that. I've just, that's decided. exactly what was going through my head when you yeah. told me that. You and were... that was, the, that was the first time I'd ever done it. And it was when I first started working with them. So I didn't really have like, 
you know, you're just like, sweet, someone's giving me an opportunity. You're like, yeah, I'll do whatever. You, not, not whatever, but I understand, like, you can't really, it's, you know, you have to have the right person to be able to send someone on, like, a backcountry trip for five days to capture photos. But, um, you know, now mostly I'm like, I'll just either use my own photos that I take or um, somebody will, you know, like, somebody will send somebody with me for whatever. Like, generally, if it's a films thing, um for a company and they want the content, they'll send somebody to film it. And that person will just take stills as well. And I'll take my own stills and just kind of at the end of the trip, be like, okay, here's everything. So a month ago when I contacted you, you were in New Zealand. And when you're there, do, do come, do these companies keep tabs on you of like, they know your schedule and they are, are, are formulating like, Hey, Remy's going to be in New Zealand for the next 30 days. What were you hunting over there? Uh, Stag? Uh, no fallow deer and tar mostly. Tar. What's a tar? It's like a species of mountain goat. So Himalayan tar. It's like they a, don't eat good, right? Oh uh, yeah, they're really good. Come actually. on, dude. No, really. You good. and Rennell are weird. No, it's um the this grass. It's tussock grass, but it's super high protein. Their their meat's like literally marbled, like like marbled Kobe like a wagyu beef. beef. Yeah. So you're over you're over there hunting. So are you in contact with with? Seiko and Under Armour and, and Vortex and you're saying, Hey, what can I be getting done for you? Or do they just trust you? Like, Hey, I'm going to bring back content. I'm going to bring back assets. I'm going to distribute these assets to you when I get back. Or do you go over there with a bullet, you know, bullet points of saying, all right, Under Armour needs this Vortex needs this, or is it just kind of a free for all? And then whatever they get out of it, they get out of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I don't go over with bullet points or anything. I think most of it is like the companies that I work with, um, what they really want is they just want to support my lifestyle and not really have to feel like they're interfering in any way. They want to support my lifestyle. Let me, you know, essentially use the gear in a way that I actually have to use it. And they only want me to use stuff that works for me. So I'm not like, nobody's ever like, Oh, here, use these binoculars. And I'm like, these are shit binoculars and forced to like, nobody's, nobody ever does anything like that. Like it's more just supporting a lifestyle because you know, it's, I think it's, it's all, it's a testament to their products and their company to just say, go have at it, do what you do. Because I, I feel like a lot of the stuff that I do is more extreme than what most people are going to do. So if it works for me, it'll probably work in 99.9% .9 of the scenarios out there. And that's really what I do is just try to find the stuff that works in those situations that I'm in, um, for whatever that trip is and just, yeah. And so, you know, I might take some photos and things and, um, share the stories or whatever while I'm out there. Um, I think that the products play an important part in the stories a lot of times. Um, but I try not to just hit people over the head with products because I think if you really are looking, if, if you see what I do and you're like, Oh, what should I use? You know, I can give you a really good rundown of the stuff that I have. All you have to do is look at what I'm using. I'm using it for a reason. It's not because, you know, I am told nobody tells me do this, do that. Like I've never once been told. And I think if I was told to do something, I don't think I would do it. Like I would just say, I don't want to work with this company or whatever. Because so if Remi Remington came at you and they almost, they had like the same name as you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so if they came to you at the same time Seiko did, or let's say not at the same time, but at the same time that, that happened, but it wasn't Seiko, it was Remington. Do you take on this product project with the same amount of vigor or is it, or is there a deciding process of like, well, I don't know if I really want to get into this rifle because it's maybe doesn't have, and, and Remington's a hell of a rifle. Yeah. Hell of an action. 
I don't know, you know, accuracy out of the box compared to a Seiko. I haven't done the study, but I know that there are rifles that are comparable with a Savage is a hell of a rifle, very accurate out of the box. Why was it because they came at you at the right time or could it have been any rifle company when Seiko came to you? Or do you really have that in your mind of like, I'm only going to go with a gun that I know that I would use daily or would you use any of the rifles out there? Uh, no. Yeah, I would, it was it was fairly intentional of there's probably, I probably had a list of three companies that I would use. And the, and if, you know, other companies were like, Hey, let's, I would probably be like, well, I'd actually been, uh, talked to by a, a couple other companies and I just said no. So at the time, at the time you just said no, Seiko just was on that short list. Yeah. That if Seiko happened to call, you were in. Yeah. And you got, you were able to put together a deal with them. Yeah, because, um, you know, I've used their uh, their guns in, like, New Zealand and other places, and I've used the Tikas a lot as well. Um, so, you know, I like, even Tika, which is their, I don't even know what you, like, their, what, what, it, what would it be? Like a, their, entry their red-headed stepchild. Their, their entry-level gun. Yeah, but, I mean, here, you know, when I first shot one of those rifles, I was like, I recommend that rifle a lot to people, the Tikas, because it's a lightweight gun. It's five or 600 bucks and it shoots a guaranteed minute of angle accuracy out of the box. And they've all been shot. Like that's not saying that it shoots that. It actually shoots that before it leaves the factory by a human, which is crazy. Like every one of those guns gets shot. Everyone. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. um, so you're like, okay, like that's, you know, that's something I'm like, okay, yeah, that, I could get on board with. Um, and everything now, like, I don't want people to think, well, there are some things where you go, okay, you know, there are companies where I'll work with, and it's not necessarily like the, the, the most expensive. Um, you know, Vortex Optics has everything from some of the lower end to like some higher end stuff. Whereas, you know, Swarovski's all higher end and not saying that they don't have also you know, like Swarovski has incredible optics but you also when I work with a company too I kind of factor in man who am I talking to and is what I'm going to be using like I want to use something that people can reasonably afford you know I don't want only something that's the the highest price so it's cool to to kind of pick and choose some things and and some things I won't give any um leeway on like uh packs for instance like I, I just feel there's no reason for me to use a pack that i am not comfortable in because it, it like physically degrades my body and i have to use it a lot and carry a lot of weight so for me i'm either going to use the packs that i want or no packs if that makes sense or, or not have like a pack sponsor um whereas like but you do uh, have one i do now yeah but that it is fairly new yeah as of yeah, this last year. But th that's the other thing is, I mean, like, there's only a couple packs that I, and the two packs that I've used would be, like, the Outdoorsman pack or the Stone Glacier pack. And the Stone Glacier is an internal frame and the Outdoorsman is more of an external frame. So I don't even think they're really, they're both packs, but they're very different. Um, but those are two that I really like, and I've used both of them a lot of hours. Um, you know, now I'm just using, I'm working with Stone Glacier more because, of a couple of reasons. One, they're making some really awesome tents and I'm like, tents is another thing. I'm like, I'm not going to get a tent sponsor because there's only a couple, there's only two tent companies out there that I think I would use their tents, you know? So it's like, those are the ones that I'm going to either use or not. 
do a sponsorship thing for. So will there ever be anything like from this company with the packs and the tents? Will there be the Remy Warren signature model? Will there be the Remy Warren edition? Will this rifle have Remy Warren's name on it? Is your name that big and that credible to where it will be part of the brand and not just an ambassador or a plug or a testimonial or an endorsement? Now it's actually like the Remy Warren model. This is what Remy chooses kind of gun um, or kind of tent or. No, nah, I don't think so. You don't think so? No. Would you Would you ever want that? Because um, you like yeah. you seeing your name in articles is badass. Seeing your picture on the wall at Under Armour is badass. The human psyche tells me like that that's achievement. I'm doing good. People are entrusting in me. So why would you say you don't think so? If they're oh. entrusting in you that much, why would you say that a company wouldn't ride on you like that? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd be like, yeah, I, I, it just depends on what it is. You know, I'd have to have like a pretty heavy hand in, in it as well, I think. Um, Tim, the solo hunter, says that you are the number one he believes. And I don't I told him to get me science behind this. He says that Remy Warren is the number one guy in the country, in this industry, to endorse your product. Really? That's cool. He said that on this podcast. Yeah. The number one, better than Michael Waddell, bigger than Steven Rinella, better than Joe Rogan. Not that Joe's in the space, but he is. He's, he's pumping Traeger now, yeah. and he's doing some things with Hoyt. Or is it Hoyt? Hoyt, yeah. That he works with? Um, the number one product endorser in the country, in the industry. That's a big thing for somebody like Tim Burnett to say. I mean, Tim's been here, done that. Yeah. He's got a successful brand. So why, why would you say you don't think so? Is it a confidence thing with you? Or do you have this underlying quiet confidence about you? Or is it everything so freaking just nonchalant with you? Like, well, I mean, you know, I had, <laughs> yeah, I had, a, I had a choice and they had, they had a tent. So I said, yes. Yeah. There's no, got to be some science behind this. Yeah. I mean, no, I, I'm not saying that I wouldn't uh, do like a, um, like my own product of some like with a company no i'd be down for that um i just think like i'm the type of person that i'm like i want the company to um you know like a lot of companies i work with are very established in the stuff that they make they don't need my name on it you know as far as like to sell more of it because it's already it's already really good and that's why i'm working with them if that makes sense well on the other side of the coin if it was that good they wouldn't need you out there telling them that telling the audience that it was that good well, yeah, I think that it's more of, um, you know, I think that they like it as far as they want my input and feedback in a lot of things. Um, like, okay, cool. Does it pass your test? And I'm like, yeah. But I think that uh, I would definitely, I definitely would do um, more like branded product stuff. I'm not opposed to that at all. But a lot of the deals that I work out with these companies don't involve that. So whether they want to do it or not, or whether I want to do it, I've tried to do it with a couple other companies and it just never worked out very well. So I'm like, ah, it's just, it, it's like the one, t the couple times that I've tried it, I was like, man, this is a waste of time. Um, you know, so I don't know, but I also don't want to just slap my name on like a million, you know, Chinese made products that suck just to have your name on something out there, you know? So that's like, if somebody came to me and was like, oh, here, we want to make this knife or something. And I'm like, well, it'd have to be something that I really like and really think is high quality and something that I would use. Otherwise, you know, I won't. And a lot of those things that I use in our high quality already sell enough that they wouldn't even need, you know what I mean? If that makes sense, like they, they already have those products out there. So well, I don't, I don't yeah. know. I don't, I just don't know if, if the engineers at Nike needed Michael Jordan or Jumpman jump on the tongue of a, of, I'm not saying that it didn't help sell them, but it didn't make the shoe better. Yeah. 
That's true. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you're yeah. actually you're actually making a product better with your ingenuity and your experience. Yeah. You bring that to the table and you go over to Finland and design these three guns with these guys. Yeah, they had the they had all the pieces probably engineered and molded and, and machined and everything was already in place from the CNCs and how they how they build their guns. But you're you're designing they're having you come over there and put your name on these three models, not literally put your name, but your your endorsement on them. I just don't understand why it couldn't be the Remy Warren line of of the rifles. Yeah, no, I think I mean that that could be something that we might talk about. And that, now you're now you become a millionaire. Yeah, I get five percent. I mean, I become your agent. I go over there yeah. and work the deal. Right. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm with you. But I'm saying is like it, I just see like it. It just seems like if if you're real quiet in your tactics of of the of getting the of endorsing these things it's almost like you're saying you come find me and see what i use and then you're going to understand have an understanding that i only use or, or endorse you know what i believe in in the field but on the other side of it i'm looking like as a businessman because you are a businessman you open up your own business you have the entrepreneurial spirit i i would think that you would want to push for something a little bit more of like man i've made it to where i can put my name on a product now and make a lot more money with still having the grounding and the humility of saying, this is a product that I've believed in since the beginning. I don't go into the field without it. Yeah. It just seems to me like that's the next step in the progression is like of, of revenue stream is these companies need to do a better job of getting the Remy Warren name out there as their guy, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, I don't I, know if that makes sense or not. Yeah, but. no, I, and I, I definitely agree with that. And that's something that, you know, you may see here in the future. Oh, yeah, I might so. be picking, I might be picking be. up on some. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even know this. Yeah. So I just, I think, I just think that that makes sense. I mean, yeah. with Tim Burnett saying what he said, it got me thinking like, Remy Warren, like, I know he's a, fuck, a badass. I know that the dude can kill. I know that he's a stud hunter, but the number one product endorser in the country, I'm like, I don't really see a whole lot of products with your name on it. Now, I'm not saying that you're not, I, and I might not be in the space enough. I might not be ingrained in it enough. I'm not saying that you're not successful as hell because I know that you are. When he said that, it opened my eyes like, man, maybe the companies that he's working with just aren't putting his name out there a lot. Maybe it's behind the scenes more and more. Maybe not. I don't know. I've, don't, I've looked at Vortex. I don't know that you're a brand ambassador of Vortex. Do I not look at him enough? I know Vortex is a brand of yours through you, watching yeah. you do your thing. Now, maybe that's what Vortex wants. I don't know. But to me, it's almost like this dude is being considered this much of a badass in so many different lights that why wouldn't these companies be like, oh, man, Remy's our guy. Remy's our guy. Because they got to bring credibility to you, too. So the audience understands that the relationship just isn't one sided. Yeah. That's the way I'm looking at the marketing thing here is like the next step in the progression is Remy Warren's name not exploited, not saturated, not hoard out on stuff that you believe in. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm looking at it more aggressive than you do, but and maybe I'm way off base. I just think that like that name needs to be out there because when Tim said that, I'm like, really? Like he's the number one guy out there. I'm not saying that he knows that for sure. You know, yeah. I don't, but, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I'm not saying that it is right. I mean, I'm just saying that you have a big name in the industry and these companies that you're working with, it's almost like nobody would know about it unless you said you were. Yeah. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Is it true? Or do you agree with it? I should say, maybe it's not true. No, I do. You, do you agree with yeah, that? Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. So are you, are you saying that these companies that you work with, if they have you use me, 
get, get it. Let's get something going here. I yeah. mean, you have me. I'm loyal as a mother effort to you guys. Let's go. Let's rock. Yeah. Like let's start. Let's start getting this bigger and bigger to create get more eyeballs on it. Yeah. Because to me, it's almost like I wouldn't know that you were with Vortex unless I followed you. Right. I don't open up anything and see like Vortex pumping Remy Ward. Yeah. Maybe it's not your turn yet. Maybe that's not in their cards. I don't know. But if I'm the marketing director or I'm a product designer and I know what you bring to the table, I would think that it, that that's a lot stronger with your name on it than just letting people guess. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't Maybe know. Maybe I'm on to something. No, there. I think yeah, I, I think I think some two things too, like it depends on the company and their strategies too, because they don't, you know, they're like out of certain people, they're like, you know what, let's let this let's support this person and let them do their thing. And um and you know, we'll attract people that way. And I think that there's only a few people that can do that. So I think I'm one of those people that does that for these companies where I just use it and you know, and they kinda are like, Yeah, just do what you do. And they're like and that's good you. enough for you. Yeah. And that's good enough for you too. In a lot of aspects, yeah. In a lot of aspects. Depends on it depends on what it is, really. So, so would it be safe to say that we will see the Remy Warren name out there more on some products coming? Or is that completely secret right now? Um, no, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's not really in, I mean, there's been talks, in the, but it's not really in the works right now. But I would imagine in the next few years for sure. How old are you, Remy? Uh, 34. You don't even remember. You've been I was thinking, thinking it's just hard. Like, <laughs> I just don't know. Are there kids in the future? Uh, yeah, hopefully. Yeah, we'll see. You haven't, you haven't laid that seed yet? No. Not yet? Not yet. So do you have visions of being that dad in the outdoors with a, a son or a daughter throwing that lure out there, pyramid, or walking behind you in the mountains or on your shoulders in the mountains? Does that entice you or are you still of the mindset with individuality right now that you haven't done enough on your own to, to be prepared for that yet or be ready for that yet? Oh no, I, I think that'd be fun. You know, I've, I've done a lot of stuff on my own. It's like, I don't have to, you know, I think it'd be cool to bring somebody up and kind of show them what I like to do. And I think it'd be fun to see that too. Cause I remember like really my passion for hunting started at that, a real young age, you know? So I think that that would be cool to see that passion in someone else. And if I have a kid and that's not their thing, that's cool too. I mean, it doesn't have to be, but I'll do my best to kind of share what I love, you know, and hopefully not in an over <laughs> overbearing way. Cause I think there's that also that thing, you know, whatever your parents do, you generally aren't that interested in, it's you know, true. it's like, it's true. you know, my dad, like loves painting and construction stuff. And I mean, it, it's okay, but I just didn't like, you know, high school, whatever that kind of job. I just hated it. It just wasn't me, you know, but my brother Jason likes it. So, you know, it just depends on, I think the individual and, and whatever. So, you know, maybe if my thing's hunting and they see me, you know, that, that would be my only fear is if my kids saw hunting as like, that's dad's job. I never want it to like, feel like a job, look like a job. And I think when you start, um, that's the thing for me is like, I, I still love it as much as the day that I started. And so for me, it's not a job. It's like, I don't feel like I've worked. It's not a job, but I also intentionally, there are some things that I intentionally go like, now I can't do that because when it starts to feel like work and just be real burdensome, then it's like you lose that passion and desire for it. And then you just, I feel like that that's the wrong reasons. Like a photo shoot. Yeah, exactly. Like if I, if I start losing that passion and desire for it, for me, it becomes 
like something that's not real, then it's not, then I'm not interested in it. And I immediately kind of shut down. I'm like, nah, that, that's not for me. I don't want to do that. So. so there could be a day where your wife does get pregnant and you have a kid, couple kids running around. You might be ready for that in the next couple of years. That's, that's naturally, I see that with the life you live. And I'm not saying that it, it's a for sure thing, but it just seems like all this knowledge that you have to pass down and done in the right light, like you're saying, your kid comes out and you're just like, go get your bow, go get your gun, yeah. get your boots on, da 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 And he's like, dad, I'm freaking, I'm going freaking snow skiing. I'll see you later, whatever. Even yeah. though you do like to snow ski a little bit. But the passion for it drives you to continue to hone your skills and share this lifestyle with people. And it's intriguing. It's captivating. It's like people want to get in that truck and go to that mountain with you and get out of that truck and walk that mountain with you and clean that deer with you or that tar with you and eat that tar with you. That's, it takes a talent to do that. Do you... Is everything a bed of roses in this lifestyle? I mean, is everything just come to you easy? Is there anything, is there, are there any drawbacks? Is there anything that makes you go, mother, are there haters, Remy? Are there people online that wear you out to where it just defeats you? Um, is there anything that makes this lifestyle like not worth keep going? Or is it all just a bed of roses to where, and I know it takes a lot of work. Yeah. I'm not discounting the amount of work or the work ethic it takes to get to where you've gotten. That's not included in the statement. I'm just saying, is there things, the, the industry, the, 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 the eagerness to, to be better than the next guy or, or post the best picture with the most likes, or is there anything that you're just looking at? Like, man, I just wish this shit would go away. <laughs> oh, I mean, I think there's, you, you know, you kind of get worn out in some aspects of some things. I mean, like a lot of travel really wears you down a little bit. You go on, you know, big trips here, big trip there, packing. You know, I absolutely hate packing. <laughs> like, God, don't you wish you had a personal packer? Dude, it's the, I've, I've hated packing ever since. I'm the same I way. St- I, I wait, I'm the biggest procrastinator oh, packer yeah. in the world. I, I literally like, I'll get the suitcase out and I'll be like, when am I going to start putting stuff in there to go to Argentina or, or wherever we're going, yeah. right? Or, or packing the trailer for Canada. You're just like, oh my gosh. And packing, packing for hunting is just like, there's so many things that you need. And then there's so many things that you don't need that you want. It's just like a weird, I just hate it. I hate it. I literally, oh, and then I went like, I'll go from like a cold weather hunt, like an Alpine mountain hunt to then this hot Australia hunt. You're like, okay, that's, that's actually easier. Cause it's literally just, I bring one shirt, one pair of shorts and then my gun and bow and water filter. And you're like, sweet. That's I'll, Australia. I'll yeah. So you'll be shooting that water Buffalo and shorts. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I go like the crocodile. Huh? Yeah, I go like um, there. I pretty much go like barefoot. Let me ask you this real quick on that. You know, guns are looked down on in that country. They're not allowed in that country, right? Yeah, you right. can't own a gun in Australia. Why would why would a company go over there? What what does that hunt mean anything to anybody? Why would that be chosen as one of the hunts instead of a stone sheep in British Columbia or the Northwest Territories? Why would they pick Australia? Is that a destination for hunters? Um, yeah, I think it is. It, I think the other thing too is like I I kind of had a, a role in picking some of these hunts, and I wanted something um, because I thought I would be cool for like a big. A, like I've never really hunted with like a big boar rifle, like a big dangerous game type rifle. Um, so that was part of it is I wanted to pick, I got to pick my rifles. And, and so I wanted to pick things that were different um, a little bit, but also like for a specific, I, I, I liked the idea of building a rifle for like a specific type of hunt. So when I made that 375, 
I thought to myself, okay, like a, a big caliber rifle, what's a cool hunt? And there's only a few hunts you can do for like larger animals. And that's one that I could do because I've, I've done it before. Like I have the contacts, like I can do that for pretty much no money really. Um, so that I thought that was like a good hunt to kind of do because I can do that kind of on my own type type hunt. So the, the financial part of it is why you wouldn't pick maybe Africa or Tanzania or Nigeria or somewhere. somewhere. Well, that in the legit, like the legal logistics of like in, in a lot of places in Africa, you have to have like a professional hunter with you and all this other stuff. Whereas that, like I can hunt the way that I want to hunt, you know, I don't have somebody telling me like, here's what you can do here's you know, and as far are these water Buffalo in Australia, wild, they are wild. Yeah. So there's no high fence. There's this, this isn't a game farm. This is wild. They're wild. Yeah. DIY. with yeah. some buddies yeah exactly and they're um and they aren't native there so it's like they're considered they're classified as like a pest so that's another factor of it is it's not it's like you're going and you're hunting this animal that the they want shot off so of you kill place. as many as you want when you're over you there? could yeah i shot i just shot the one what do you um, do with the meat I for the take natives? it yeah well there's yeah so there's like um you know some it depends where you are like there's some aboriginal communities nearby and um, those guys generally want the meat. Um, they don't really like the big bulls as much, but it just depends on like how much meat they have. There's not a lot of uh, refrigeration, so it's like the meat lasts until it. You know, so they're con- like in some of these places. It's like, well, I took a lot of the. We took a lot of the meat back with us. Um, you know, because we had coolers and stuff and trucks. Did so, you eat it? Oh yeah, I've got like a whole freezer full. So of is it, it is it comparable to bison in America? It tastes amazing. It's tougher than shit. It's like super tough. Why? Just because they're traveling so much? I guess. I, I guess. I I um I've uh, I've um you know like the younger bulls and cows. I got a a pretty small cow before it and uh, like a young one, and it was awesome. Like the flavor on it is really good. Um, cause I've gone over there bow hunting and stuff before. After. Like sometimes I'll stop by on my way back from New Zealand and just stop off, visit some friends. It's not real greasy. Hunting. No, not hardly any fat. Um, so it just depends when you go like early in the season, they, there's more water around. So that I feel like it's better time for the meat like now up until maybe a month from now. And then things start drying up up there and then they're concentrated on smaller waters. They get real like gangly, um, real stringy i guess but uh like this time of year like from from i'd say like april well yeah april through the end of june which probably seems like the meat tends to be better in my opinion um just based on like conditions like a lot of grass and a lot of water and everything like that but so the so packing out of everything that could happen in this lifestyle the one thing that you picked that wears you out is packing yeah. so that that's like the, the the travel is an ass kicker yeah it, it 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 can really drain on you is there any political part of it or the play in the game that you wish that you weren't making your living as a hunter and you just got to go and enjoy this stuff is or is it is it is it everything's pretty much falling in place yeah no i, I don't really um you know, I mean, there's some stuff like, uh, you know, constant post. I don't, I don't, I feel like I don't, um, post very much. I don't know. People like, will be like, you need to post more. I'm like, no, I post when I feel like it's relevant. And I also don't, I just don't like to be the person that's just like constantly, constantly there. But I think in some aspects, I kind of always feel this obligation to just post more stuff. Um, you know, I try to, I, tr- I tend to just try to do stuff that's like, 
fresh. I don't like to rehash things, but I think there is some stuff where a lot of people miss things and they'd like to know about something or whatever. So I think I'll try to post more things. Um, it's just one of those deals where that's one of the things you're like, Oh gosh, I don't want to be on a, I'm not real. Um, I like to be in the moment, so I don't really like to have to spend the time to do some of that stuff sometimes, but I also really like to be creative and share. So for me, it's kind of a little, it's a, it's a tiny internal struggle, but I think that the benefits of sharing something like that outweigh the benefits of just not doing it because I've done trips where I didn't, I go on quite a few trips where I don't share. And I kind of feel like, man, I cheated my, not cheated myself, but cheated the opportunity to really share something that somebody like might gain something out of. And for me, I think the, the, um, to do it outweighs not doing it in, in most instances. You put a, you put a lot of thought into your post and how you do your stories and how you, 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 the copy, you can tell you're a very, you know, seasoned writer, but you, you put a lot of thought in how you get people engaged and move them from one part of the platform to the next. And it's almost ingenious. And I don't know if you have, uh, you know, somebody that taught you that, but it's, it's a really cool way. And I notice it of how I don't copy it because that I don't, I mean, I very easily could go on there and try it and do it, but it's your way. It's, it's yeah. like, it's like, you're the only person that does it that I've seen that. And I'm, and I'm not on, I'm not on social media a lot, right? I follow yeah. a few people and I pay attention to even fewer. So seeing the way you do, it's very captivating. Like, man, he's got a way, there's a science behind it. How you kind of, you know, guide these people navigate them through right and then bring yeah. them to here and then all of a sudden they're here and and, and and it's working because you got a lot of a lot of uh engagement you have a lot of followers you have a lot of impressions going on and that's one way that you make a living so now you are a guide and an outfitter and you're a writer for magazines and blogs and, and websites and now you're a product ambassador and now you're a um i guess a social influencer now yeah That's i hate an, that word i hate <laughs> yeah. that word too but you are and you you know you're like a con I, I feel it's like more like a content creator because i've always been like good at telling stories whether it's through television like building out a story like writing a story no you are really good um, so i just use it as another way to create stories um so yeah i guess it's like a social media story creator or something like that but yeah that's um yeah, that, that, that's a huge thing these days because, you know, I look at television or, um, well, you look at, you know, outdoor television and that was always my dream. Always my, like, I loved magazines and outdoor TV just because, you know, you don't get, I, I didn't get to be hunting or fishing as much as I would have liked. So the magazines and the TV were a way for me to engage in that world in the off season or in times that I was at home or times that I was in school. And so, you know, to see, to, to create that myself was, was, has always been a dream of mine. Um, but I kind of see the television going to the wayside, like the outdoor. Don't say that. It, It went from, it went from being nothing to being huge to now definitely on a major decline. But it could come back. Because all TV's on a major decline. Yeah. I, well, I just think it's just going to be moved to somewhere else. What, like, con- different ways to get your content? Yeah, different ways to get your content. But I see it through like the ways that companies are creating content. Like Everybody can now host. The reason TV was big is because you had nowhere to host the stuff. 
well, you're going to sell DVDs. Well, you can sell them out of what Sportsman's Warehouse and a couple places, but you couldn't sell that many. Like people wanted it, but they had nowhere to get it. So outdoor networks are created where it's a place where people can come and see that kind of content if they want that kind of content. Now, no one's like fewer people are going to TV. They're going to other places, but everybody now can host content. Like if I have, I could like any person out there can host their own content. They can put it on YouTube. They can put it on whatever. Like there's platforms to host your own content and companies that have large followings can host their own content as well. So I see companies being like essentially the new media houses where look at a lot of companies coming out with their own videos, with their own podcasts, with their own articles that are put online. Like companies are now huge content creators. And then you look at like social media. I mean, I can go and make a, spend all this time and money making a episode for TV that uh, say, I don't even know how many people see, you know, they give you these statistics, but I don't think a lot of them are very accurate. So they give you these statistics that who knows how accurate they are. Or I can go in and put that same energy into sharing that story on my Instagram story and get just as many views or more, more views in a 24 hour period than you ever will on television. But crazy. how do you know how long that's going to last? Well, you don't. Because you also have the other side on Instagram where they'll take any Tom, Dick, or Harry that's a hot chick or whatever and put a gun in their hands and then think that that's credible for the end consumer when there's really no credibility behind that. So these companies are are willing to take somebody that doesn't have your experience, doesn't have your portfolio, doesn't have your resume, and they'll say, oh, she's hot. She's got 400,000 people or he's got 400,000 people because he's he's got this going on. And all of a sudden, those people become credible sources of marketing overnight, insta-famous, they call it, when it's really not. Yeah. It's almost like they're pulling the wool over your eyes because the, that, th- this many eyeballs are going to see that. But that person holding that, it's just that person holding that gun or that holster on her hip with her belly showing, and I've said this before, to me is not a viable, credible source of marketing. Yeah, and that, I, th- I think... <laughs> so is that going to go away before... Oh, a Super Bowl commercial costs two million dollars to put on the Super Bowl. That's still on TV. All the big iconic brands are still spending money in advertising. It looks yeah. like when you watch TV on all the commercial space. I'm not saying I'm not arguing with you. I'm just saying though, couldn't it go the other way to where all of a sudden you're like, wow, there's been a huge decline in in, in Instagram. People are finally catching on to kids are depressed because they're jealous. Their friends are getting more likes to them. Um, there's a lot of people in the adult years of their lives that are not going on that shit anymore. And I'm not saying, I mean, I know the numbers are huge, but slowly by slowly, can people also get away from that because of what it does? Oh, for sure. So I I, mean, you just kind of constantly, it's just, you know, it's just depends on like, if you're creating the content, you're like, okay, where's my audience at? And what's the easiest way to reach them where they can enjoy what you're doing and enjoy the content without, you know, having to, where are the people at where they can find it really is the the question. And I think that a lot of that, like I haven't had cable in my house for probably seven years. You know, I mean, how many other people out there only watch stuff on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, YouTube? There's a lot. There's a lot, but there's a lot that still watch broadcast TV too. 
that the numbers show. So uh, it's, it's a very interesting topic. Like, you know, Ranella being on Netflix, how many people are seeing his show on Netflix and probably more than we're seeing on sportsman's channel. There's a reason why he's on Netflix. It's um, Netflix has great documentaries and good comedic standup, but they got shit movies and they got a lot of bad content on there too. Even yeah. though, even though they are very picky with what they put on there per se, when you look at their, you know, their regulations and everything guidelines, uh, but there's a lot of you can't really go on there and find a lot of stuff that you're looking for either. But now Hulu and, and, and all of these other ones or Apple TV, go on there, get a movie, boom, get it right away on demand kind of stuff. But there's still a lots and lots and lots of good content on broadcast TV. A lot of it. There's really is. There's a lot of good networks out there that have the, the, the IFC. If you heard of this network, you probably haven't if you haven't had TV in seven years. But they have shows on there that are awesome and clever and very well produced and great personalities and stories and stuff. So I, I, I think there's two sides of it. And, and I don't know if I personally, if I wanted to go that way and lose the traditional aspect of American TV because that's what we grew up. That's how yeah. we grew up. That's what America was built on. You know, Saturday morning cartoons and Sunday morning watching WWF wrestling before it became the WWE and all of the different. I mean, watching mom watch Saint Elsewhere or, or or Barney Miller growing up or you know, oh, there's so much you could talk about in TV and how it formed America. So I hope that it doesn't just go one sided. And hearing you say you think that hunting TV is going to be gone. And I'm not saying that it's not, and I'm not arguing with you one bit. I'm just saying, personally, I hope that there's a shift or at least a balance because I think there has to be, there has to be that, there there has to still be that ability to go on and say, yeah, I'm watching hunting TV and not have to, you know, have 30,000 choices. I mean, how... YouTube, how do you know in a year YouTube's going to go, hey, dude, we're outlawing guns? They already got liberal, you know, very yeah. liberal outlooks on guns and killing on there. So is that going to be a viable source for what we want to do in three years? Yeah, I don't know. Knows? I don't yeah. know. I mean, and I, I hope that, I mean, I hope it doesn't go away, the, the TV stuff, but you just see like it's just less and less and less every year, you know? And just more on the digital side. It what do you mean, less and less? Less producers and less shows available on there. I think just or less people watching. Less people it. watching it. I, yeah, I can't argue that. Yeah, I can't. I mean, that's yeah. I mean, quite a quite a like as far as like I would say the peak was probably what five six years ago, yeah. five five years ago. I mean, from then to now, like it's just a lot a lot different. It's a different landscape. Well, but that's the same with all television, really. Sure. You know, I mean, like a lot of people, even like the larger networks, a lot of their shows, whatever they can produce, you know, people just get them on, get the streaming app for that particular, you want NBC, you can get NBC streaming app. You can get, you can just pick and choose. It's it's not much different than um, having basic cable, but you just pick and choose the channels you want. You just pay a la carte, you know, for what you want to watch instead of having 400 channels and you only like three of them. You just buy the three channels that you like. I've seen that too. You know, I've seen that too. I guess I'm too old school to where I want to, I want to have rabbit ear antennas and some TV going on. Yeah. But a lot of people say, I don't watch TV. I don't, I mean, I love TV. I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say that I, you know, go and binge watch a bunch of stuff, even though you could like to make a murder on Netflix. I mean, I could, or making a murder or whatever that is. Season one and season two. I watched all 13 episodes in one night. Yeah. (laughs) I couldn't turn it off. 
But I also have a very active lifestyle. But when people say, I, you know, I don't have time to watch TV, I get it, right? TV's awesome. Yeah. Entertainment's awesome. And the other, the other, you know, aspect of it is, you know, where do we put our eggs in? What baskets do we put them in? You know, you got to support the people that support the lifestyle. And I'm not going to go put a hunting show on YouTube right now thinking that it's going to be there in two or three years with how yeah. volatile that is. The Outdoor Channel is always promoted the lifestyle and believed in it and yeah they've had to change their way or their direction a little bit or their offerings to keep up with the joneses and to keep their eyeball as many eyeballs on their network as possible because that's how they get the deals with spectrum or charter or at&t or all you know all of the different carriers whatever the carriers might be i'm not a, i'm not real educated in that part of the industry but i think that there's a place for it and i hope that you're wrong that it's not dying out 100 percent. i'm not saying that that's what you're saying so i can't say i hope you're wrong but I, I, I have seen the shift and I hope that it starts to balance out and that it doesn't go away because yeah. I, I believe in it. And you bring up podcasting. Podcasting has become whoever thought that people would want to listen to us or listen to Joe Rogan, talk to Mike Tyson about his new weed farm or listen to Adam Carolla talk about what he did this week. I mean, think about it. At, Howard Stern's been on the radio for 30, 40 years, 40 years closer to about 40 years now. He's become a billionaire off of radio. Podcasting is the same thing. Yeah. It's just like whoever thought that people would want to drive to work at six in the morning and listen to Howard Stern talk about what he did that weekend. He was real. He kept it real. Podcasting, you have a lot of different stories out there and a lot of different people that are keeping it real and people are interested in people. And you, you, the podcasting has been around way longer than I thought it was. Did you know that Rogan's had his podcast for like 14 years or whatever? Yeah. You did know crazy. that. Yeah. Bill Burr, I thought his podcast just started like a year ago. I heard it's on like season 11, yeah. 11 years or 12 right. years. I'm Bill Burr's a comedian. Yeah. He's a freaking, he's on Rogan a bunch. Him and Rogan are good friends, but it's been around a long time, man. We're late to the game. I'm late to the game and you're later to the game. Um, as far as I think you should have podcasts. I think you should be like, you have a great uh, approach to speaking and, and writing and telling a story. What makes what makes a, a successful podcast? Why do you listen to them? Why do people, why is Steven Ranella a good podcaster? Why are his topics interesting? Are they interesting? How does somebody choose which podcast to listen to? And, and how do you go about it? Like, man, I, I'm into this. Or are you a podcast guy? Do you like to listen to podcasts a bunch? I'm not really a podcast guy. You're not in. No, you don't, don't listen I, to them a lot. That's why I, I still haven't figured it out. I'm like, why, why would anyone listen to me talk? It's weird, isn't yeah, it? No, but I mean, um, I do like, like, I, I listen to a lot of XM radio and I do a lot of like book on tapes when I'm traveling. And I've kind of done a few podcasts in replace of those book on tapes because just traveling a lot um, depends how I'm traveling. If I'm like on a plane, then I'll just download Netflix, Amazon shows, whatever. There's some cool stuff out there that I like to watch. Uh, but yeah, I think that, um, I don't know the, I think that there's just, you know, it's a lot of people commute and travel and have a lot of downtime and it's, it's, it's a lot easier I mean, I, I do it. I get bored of just like listening. I mean, I love music, but sometimes you just like, I'll have to switch to the genre or something. Cause you just like, you've heard too you need much. More yeah. You need something, something, yeah. something that passes the time a little bit. Something that's not, you know, you could get, you could jump on a, I don't know when I'm, if I'm working out or something, if I'm going to go for a jog, I have to, have, I'm actually thinking maybe I'll start listening to podcasts instead. Cause I just, I get bored with things if my mind's not just doing something. 
So that's where I think a lot of the pine podcast stuff comes into play is you can learn something, you can hear something, you can be entertained, you can know something about some whatever while doing something passive, you can be active. And I think that that's like a, the appeal to me of it is I can be driving passively and actively listening or I mean obviously you're actively driving as well but (laughs) you know what I mean like you don't have to you can like actually you just like engage your mind and kind of be doing something like like give your brain a little bit of a break a little bit of a workout to like listen in on something and you know absorb it and I think that that's a cool a cool aspect to it um the podcast that you read still uh not not very often a writer that doesn't read yeah Go ahead. What were you going to say? Podcast? Oh, no, that I interest just, you? Like, I mean, um, what, what, what gets you on a podcast? What is it? A, does it have to be a certain topic or do you fall in love with the host or the personalities or the guests or what, what? Yeah, probably a little bit more of like the personalities, a um, little bit of the, like if there's an interesting guest, like there might be, I don't remember. I saw a couple podcasts where I was like, man, I probably wouldn't listen to this podcast, but they had like a, a guest that I was kind of interested in. So I was like, Oh, I'd like to hear about that. Um, how do you, you know. find, how did you find it? Or do you go on the app and look for them or do you, do you hear, are they yeah, marketed to uh, something? Yeah. Social media, social somewhere? media, something you see like it pop up and you're like, do you listen to every one of Rogan's? No, I don't listen to, no, I'll listen to ones that that's based on the guest. If I'm like, Oh yeah, that's, I'd be interested to hear what that person has to say, but that I won't listen to all of them. No. Did you, do you listen to just the hunting guests? Cause there ain't many. Um, no, I mean, it just depends. Yeah. I think if it's just somebody that I'm like interested in or do you listen to all Ranella's? No. Do you listen to any of Ranella's? Uh, no. Are you good friends with Ranella? Yeah. You just, you're not that ingrained in his lifestyle or you know too much about it to where you're like, I don't give a shit what Steve has to say. No, I don't. I don't. I mean, I just, I honestly, I think it's more of like a time thing and I just am like, okay, in that time, I'd rather, I, you know, I can, the time that I'd be doing a podcast, there's other things that, you know. So what will you do on a 17-hour flight to Australia? Uh, podcast? Are you going to write some no. articles? What, I'd probably just watch something on You take some phone, sleep meds and, and pass out? If I can sleep, I'll sleep, yeah. Do you, you get first class on those long flights? No. What? No, dude. First class, like 20 grand. No. Dude, I, I guess it is. It's about 15 to Australia. Yeah. Why no don't way. you can afford that, Remy? No. You go back and sit in a regular seat? Oh, yeah. There's no, yeah, yeah. You don't get a laydown bed? No, I've never Dude, had one. Have you ever life. flown internationally first class? No. Oh, you got to. Yeah. I'm not saying that I've got to do it a bunch, but the times I have, I'm just like, how could you not want this? Like yeah. every time, <laughs> dude, it's like so much comfortable. This is awesome. 17 yeah. hours in a seat, dude. You got to be up and exercise and you got to be doing something. Yeah. What are you going to do? I just like download some shows, watch them. You yeah. watch a lot of TV. Yeah. I've watched like every season of everything that I'm interested in. Just what's like, your, what's your go to right now? Uh, I've got nothing right now. I've, I've burnt out. I've got nothing. What's the last thing there. you watched a full season of? Are you a comedy guy? You a sitcom guy? You a documentary guy? Um, comedy's good. Um, I, I like, I just honestly, it just depends what I'm feeling. Do I just you, like I try everything. Did you watch like any of the Bundy tapes on Netflix at all? No. The serial killer stuff. No, you didn't do any of that. Any, no, you didn't really watch any of that. The serial killers. I haven't either. But both my brothers say that I have to watch it. Yeah, weirds me out. Yeah, I'm weirds like, me out. I'm like, especially the weird. Bundy one specifically. Yeah, that one's pretty weird because of how well he fit into society. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever read up on him or studied him at all, but like you're, he literally like was killing people and working in the police station at the same time. 
because he fit in with the cops so much yeah. and they trusted him and he was so credible and he was good looking and you're just like he'd leave there and go smoke a girl and then freaking go back and i mean he was learning all the it's just crazy and i don't have all That's the crazy. details but like those documentaries are fascinating yeah. i love musical i love music documentaries on performers and bands and stuff I'm into those a lot right now. Making a Murderer, I could. Well, I hope they make a season three to that. Yeah. I like. Have you seen that? No, I haven't seen that one, dude. You got to watch season one and two. Yeah, that might be next on the list. It's a, uh, it's a uh, guy that went to prison for 18 years for rape, and then they finally got DNA proof that he was falsely accused and convicted of rape. They're gonna let him out of this prison in Michigan, and this documentary team that documents prison. Uh, um, unjustifiable prison imprisonment. Yeah. They do, they build documentaries on these stories out of New York. So they are going to Michigan to document this release. So they're there filming the release. He comes out of prison. He's with his family. He's on the, you know, he's with his girlfriend, whatever. And they're interviewing all these people. What'd you feel when he was in there and all this stuff while they're there filming, he gets accused of the murder on this girl. And there, this documentary team just happens to be in Michigan filming his release from an 18-year imprisonment. Really? So he files this civil case against the sheriff's department for like $6 million or $36 million or something for false imprisonment. And then this whole world goes downhill. And this documentary team just happened to be there to film him getting released. And while they're there filming that, this all goes down. So they just start filming and just start huh. filming. And you're just like, holy shit, dude. This, this guy's luck. But anyway, yeah, I, I mean, I'm a fan of entertainment. I like concerts i like do you like concerts are you a concert guy um yeah every once in a while you know i i don't go to How, what's your release what do you do to release uh, besides being in the mountains or being like do you get you drink you party what do you do what do you do to no, release? i don't even know what i do i go skiing i guess what if there's no snow you water ski uh yeah i don't know are you a lake guy do you like being on a boat with your shirt yeah. off flexing your abs no uh, i mean I'll, I'll go fishing quite a bit you know it just depends honestly i i work a lot so I don't really do much else, to be honest. You love it that much? Yeah, I mean, well, and I, like I said, I got 30 jobs. Like, there's just not enough time in one 24-hour period to keep up with everything, you know? And when I'm out, I'm out. So I'm, like, out, I'm doing that. And then I come back, and I've got, you know, I do everything myself. I so do. when do you leave again? Is Australia the next time you leave? Yep. Yeah, Australia, and then I'm actually going to, um, well, I'm going to a friend's wedding in Europe. Um, God, you travel yeah. overseas then, a lot. Yeah, and dude. then and then I come back from that, and then I'm going um, hunting with some buddies, and uh, well, actually, me and Dave Wise um, are going over to Maui to do some hunting. Pigs, uh, deer, and mouflon. Maybe is he going to be healed up by then? Hopefully, that's God, the goal. what a shit yeah. deal that was, huh? Yeah, that's crazy. It's amazing the adversity that and he's just like oh, he he came in here and did the podcast yeah. a couple weeks ago, and he's just like. Yeah, his feet yeah. was just—he's got a rod that long in his leg, and it's crazy. That—that that was to—I mean, it didn't look bad when it yeah. happened. You know, you would think you expect to see a lot worse, but I mean, that's a terrible break. Oh yeah, stud! What a stud! That dude was going so high. Where was that? Sweden? Uh, Austria. Austria. Yeah, it was Austria. So, and then that just, yeah, and then that'll roll right into my fall season of mule deer hunt in nevada and then up to from Montana. there yeah and then the um the asia hunt uh well i'm doing kind of like a little road trip through wyoming or idaho montana wyoming um and then i'll be going to asia and then back to montana for guiding so not in reno much um no i'll be in reno you know like 
it's like my base off point too. So When's your mule deer tag? Is that like, August? Yeah, that's all. So maybe all, maybe all we'll po- August, maybe we'll podcast after you smoke a deer. Yeah, or maybe in the middle of it, so I can see what you're doing. What, what the, get an update on the hunt, how it's yeah. going. See cool. what all this water is going to do to the mule deer season. I bet you there's going to be good horn growth. Yeah. Did you get a tag or anything? No, I put in for one tag, desert sheep. I had 18 points and did not get drawn. Put in for the points on all the other ones. Yeah. None of my brothers got anything. My nephew drew a 111 to 114 elk tag. Oh, cool. Jimmy Ray, a good friend of mine, drew a really good mule deer tag and a desert sheep tag. Oh, sweet. And then one of my friends and his girlfriend, and I'm not going to say names because he'll probably get death threats. He drew a Jarbridge bull tag. He drew a Mount Rose mule deer tag. He drew a Muddy's desert tag. No, excuse me. He drew a South of Hawthorne de- uh, California tag. He drew a cow elk tag. And he drew a... What else is there? Not a goat, maybe an antelope. He drew five tags. She drew three. She Seriously? drew a bull, a bull elk, the same mule deer tag during the rut, muzzleloader rut hunt. Oh, wow. <laughs> and and then one more. And I'm like, eight tags. Dang. I was with him yesterday and I'm looking at him going, dude, you got to turn some of these in. He's like, I'm go, I'm doing every one doing of them. Doing it all. I'm like, you're taking the whole fall. <laughs> so yeah, there was some success around our network. But as far as like what you know my brothers last year Clint killed that 86 inch goat clay killed a 201 mule deer alex killed a 197 mule deer all that was archery besides the antelope my niece killed a really good antelope last year so i don't know not one tag drawn in our family this year i was except yeah. my ne- my 16 year old nephew drew that elk tag in Ely. that'll cool. be a good one yeah that'll be awesome be a real good one. my buddy in california's son drew the statewide utah youth elk tag really so we've been i've been trying to help him network that together um, which is a weird tag because it does it's not open in any trophy. They say statewide, but it's not open in the Henry's or any of the trophy areas. So gotcha. so it's taken some ingenuity to figure out where to go and where the the herds are during that during the season. But yeah, I'm a, I'm looking forward to the fall. I'll start off I'll I'll start off in Texas in September for teal, which these are big animals I'm yeah. talking about. You know, you're going after tar, I'm going after teal. Yeah. A teal's really big. Have you ever seen a teal? Oh, yeah. Smaller than that Coke can I'm right shot there. I lots of teal. I love eating teal. Yeah. And then I'll go to Canada for almost three weeks, and I'll do Alberta, Saskatchewan, maybe Ontario. And then from there, it's I got a, a huge schedule planned of military hunts, um, and maybe another Ronald McDonald hunt, some mu- musician hunts, athlete hunts, um, just telling a bunch of different stories. Going to do one with some... Uh, New York firefighters and policemen um, in upstate New York, about 100 miles north of the city. Oh, cool. We're going to do Canada geese and mallards up there. I've never filmed in New York. I'm doing a Minnesota hunt this year. I've never filmed in Minnesota. So when I come south from Saskatchewan, I'm going to do an October Minnesota hunt for geese and ducks. And we're going we're gonna to tie that in with a really cool story about farming. So I'm, uh, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm going through all, you know, the upcoming fall. I'm trying to do it later, as late as I can, so I can kind of see Mother Nature and the migration and what it's going to do. Because last year, it was so screwed up. I didn't yeah. know where to be when. So hopefully it, it levels out a little bit this year. There's, you know, Arkansas is underwater right now. Oklahoma is underwater. Southeast Missouri is underwater. I, mean, I don't know if you've been paying attention back there, but it's flooding like crazy. So yeah. it's going to be, no, no, there's not a lot of corn going in the ground yet. So I don't know what the migration is going to do or there are going to be a lot of birds held up where they're usually held up because of the corn growth. A lot of questions, you know, that, that are coming up because of mother nature, yeah. but it makes it interesting. It makes it fun. It makes it challenging. And I like to get out there. And, and I, when I hear you tell your stories, I'm just like, man, I wonder if I'm not really a man. 
I'm not going to Asia and I'm not going to Australia to kill a water buffalo, but I am going to Texas to shoot at teal. Yeah. And there is a chance of a water moccasin crawling into my blind. So there is some yeah. danger. In, I mean, I need to go to Florida and hunt around gators. I've done that in Louisiana, but I just look at my life and I'm like, man, I'm not really doing much compared to what Remy is. He's going to, he's killing spring bear in Montana, then a tar in New Zealand, and then a water buffalo in Australia, something in Asia. Then he's going to, where was the third place? Uh, South America. South America. And then you're probably going down to Argentina to kill a stag or something. Now, I'm not guessing. I'm yeah. not going to. Oh, you can back. guess. Yeah. I'm not letting that back. But it's just, you know, it's a cool lifestyle you got, man. Yeah, thanks. And no, you, you, anything new coming up at all? Um, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Job number 28 is uh, starting a podcast here pretty soon. Um, so it will be uh, just more of like a, a quick listen. Um, not as, uh, not really guests or anything. Just more of like, a rundown on kind of like tips, but a little bit of some stories, some of my hunting stories. We got a million hunting stories and then just, uh, some kind of tips to just try to make you like people that listen, like with the goal of making you a better hunter. So that'll be coming out pretty soon. You know, you can see more information on that when I release it on my, uh, social media stuff, Instagram or whatever. When does it release? Um, possibly next week, but I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. You'll let us know. Yep. Yeah, is there know. a name of it yet? Um, there is, but I'll just hold off. We're gonna we'll oh, do we, some. We don't even, you don't even get to tell me the name on what, it here. I, well, I'm, I actually forgot the name. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, it's gonna be called Cutting the Distance. Cutting the Distance. I yeah, like that. So, That's a little hunting deal. Yeah. Cutting you know. the Distance with Remy Warren. Yeah. There you go. On today's episode, Remy will discuss how to sneak up barefooted through a creek. Yep. On a mountain goat. This mountain goat here. That's about nine and a half inches. Yeah. <laughs> that didn't sound right. <laughs> horns. Yeah. I'm talking sure. about his horns, Remy. You're real obsessed <laughs> with that mountain goat, man. <laughs> Remy Warren, you're a badass, man. I appreciate you coming back. And um, where can everybody find you? At Remy Warren on Instagram? Yep. R-E-M-I-W-A-R-R-E-N. Look him up, man. Read some of his articles. Follow him. Follow his Instagram stories, his posts. He's very creative in how he does so. This guy is literally all over the world. When he says he has 30 jobs, he's not kidding at all. He He's a nonstop worker, has a great work ethic, a great husband, great friend. I, I met him through my brother or my cousin-in-law, Mike, who's married to my first cousin, Christy. And uh, Remy's done it. He's out there doing it now, 34 years old is all. A great brand ambassador for several strong companies in the hunting industry. Let me ask you a question before you go. Yeah. If I'm going on a hunt because I got invited on a couple of big game hunts that I think I'm going to go on yeah. in between some duck hunts, what's the best pair of boots right now go for Nevada style hunting? Insulated, cold oh. weather. Danner? I haven't used those in a long time. Um, I mean, I'm familiar with the Under Armour ones. There's so like you the, use the fat tire? Uh, no, like the, if you want like insulated, like the brow tines. Do you use them? Yeah. You yeah, believe in them? Yeah. Those so the Under Armour boots are tough and they'll hold up? Yeah, for like Nevada type stuff. It's not like a mountain goat type hunting boot, but it's like for this, yeah, for standard hunting type boot. Yeah. How long do you wear a pair of boots before you actually hunt in them? So no blisters, you're comfortable in them. Is it two weeks out? Is it a month out? When should I get them? Um, wear them all summer, a few times throughout the summer? Yeah, wear them throughout the summer yeah i mean sweating them a little yeah, bit my, I've, got my like, feet. I've got calluses that are so thick like i 
right? Just from walking. Wear a pair of boots that are. So you have like an Rogan. ultra marathon, like uh, what's his name? That uh, what's can't what's the guy's name that's always on Rogan? Uh, the ultra marathoner. Uh, can you think of it right David. now? The Under Armour guy. Oh, Cam. Haynes. Cam Haynes. Yeah, his feet are disgusting, dude. Yeah, I, I've I've seen feet from those guys. Ugh. Guys, this life ain't for everybody. Chad Belling. Today's episode was brought to you by three companies. I want to name them real quick. Check them out. The 2019 North American Whitetail Championships. NAWT Champ on Instagram. NAWTC.com to get signed up. Go support it. Remy and I discuss it today. I believe in it, but be careful with it, guys. Be ethical. Be keep your morals. Do not cheat when there's money involved in killing the biggest deer, the most ducks, or the most geese. Today's episode is also brought to you by our friends at Deemer Box. For me, they're awesome guys. They come in a badass Pelican case that you can hold all of your gear in. They sound great. 50 hours of life on one battery charge. You can charge your cell phone with a USB port in there. And I'm telling you guys, as far as Bluetooth goes, you can float them in your behind your float tube while you're fly fishing on a lake, or if you're just drinking a cold beer behind a boat or in the swimming pool during the summer, we float them they balance out and again guys they're 100 syllable waterproof and they have not let us down at all our friends at deemer box d-e-m-e-r box thank you guys very much to james deemer the founder and zach brown for bringing that brand to the forefront what a great product in today's episode last but not least is brought to you by my outdoor tv we have a big announcement coming out with motv.com soon as far as the foul life goes for anything foul life related, jargon game calls related, or this life ain't for everybody, you can find us on Instagram or at our websites. I'm not going to go over them all. You guys know how to find us. Tom Rashashin, Remy and I are hungry. Remy and I are thirsty. Remy Warren, thank you very much. You the man. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Tom, hit Appreciate that button. Leith Lofton, what you going to do when the money's all gone? Say life on earth won't last that long. What you going to do? Honey's all gone.